0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torrenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with the return of a very special guest back for round two, uh Bernd Hobart, Burn. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Glad to be here. So, Burn, one one topic you you're thinking about right now is the uh, the fox hedgehog uh, dichotomy, and I'm curious how you think about it because you are someone who is able to write across a wide variety of interests uh, with some uh, resonance and and expertise. Uh, and so, I'm curious how you how you think about that construct. Yeah, sure. So,
1: so the fox hedgehog dichotomy is between artists or well, people in general who either know a lot about a lot of different topics or who have one really fundamental insight that they can apply over and over again. Um, was it's a, originally a scrap of Greek poetry but it was popularized in this essay by Isaiah Berlin. And actually the the substance of the essay is mostly about Tolstoy and his literary influences and um, his understanding of history. So um, 85, 90% of the essay has nothing to do with that distinction. It's just something that Isaiah Berlin brings up at the beginning of the essay to frame the discussion. So it's kind of weird that everyone cites it as Isaiah Berlin when uh, it's really somebody else. Anyway, um, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy because at some level, you can think of some public figures as being foxes, so having a lot of knowledge on a lot of different topics, or as being hedgehogs, if you really focused on one thing. So um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about a whole lot of different things, always sort of has pseudo-insightful things to say about them. And then Nassim Taleb has just one insight, which is that there are a lot of phenomena that are modeled as normal distributions that actually have fat tails. And over a long enough time frame, the fat tail's the only thing you care about because the thing that determines your outcomes in a variety of domains is whether or not you actually survive. So... um, I I found that uh, an interesting framing, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, so naturally I think about this in terms of investors because I just know more about investors, asset managers, hedge fund managers, than uh, a lot of other topics. And it seemed like there were a lot of investors who were foxes where they have no one core insight, like a lot of the quantitative funds, there's no one signal they're using. They're using lots and lots of signals um, it, depending on how you slice it, you can say they're using dozens, you could say they're using thousands or tens of thousands, but really what a lot of quants have done is they found this key insight, which is that human beings are fallible and that you can measure how fallible they are by looking at historical financial data and then you can trade against them at the moment of peak fallibility and use that to, to generate consistent profits. Everything they actually do is some variation on that core insight. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there are a lot of intellectual figures who you might think of as a a fox, as someone who has a lot of different disparate bits of knowledge, but actually they have one core insight. So I think Gladwell's insight is basically there are a lot of scientists with interesting ideas who are not very good writers. And so if you're a good writer and you just meet someone who says something that sounds unconventional to you and you can write it up for the New Yorker that you can consistently generate insightful-ish commentary. So, um, Gladwell, not really a fox. When you look at historical polymath, someone like Isaac Newton um, spent most of his time on theology, spent a lot of time on alchemy, and also uh, dabbled in math. It looks like he has a lot of different interests, but really, he was a very religious guy, and part of his religious views were um, He wasn't strictly a deist, but they were kind of deistic, where he thought that the natural universe was orderly, and that reflected something about the presence of the divine in the world, and the Bible also reflected that presence. So really the calculus and uh, predicting the date of the apocalypse and trying to synthesize gold from base metals, all part of the same intellectual exercise for him. He was just, uh, he was not someone with a ton of different interests, he was a person with one and only one interest who was insanely smart at pursuing that interest through a variety of angles.
0: Yeah, we're sort of having a broader conversation and culture around specialization versus generalization. There was this, uh, the book Range that came out, which I didn't read, but as far as I could tell, sort of justified to a lot of generalists that that is what, uh, you know, w- w- optimal. Um, you know, Tyler Cowen talks about himself as specializing as a generalist. Uh, how, do you, how do you make sense of this, uh, this conversation? Th- those two points, or is it better to be a specialist or a generalist?
2: What I would say is that it is a tempting line of argument to say that being a generalist
1: is good, but the problem is it is really easy to lie to yourself and say that you're a generalist when what's actually going on is that you've tried a bunch of things and you flake out and make it difficult and then you try something else. So that is one way to be a generalist, is just quit whatever you're doing as soon as it gets difficult, but that's also a way to fail at everything you do. So, um, and like you can, some people who are generalists now, they they haven't always been generalists like tyler cowan writes about a whole lot of different topics but he's also really good at economics and that was his original main focus so um and maybe he was always a bit more of a generalist and polymath who happened to be going to that school of economics and then teaching economics but um certainly that's uh, that is part of the story is that you you should actually be really good at something If nothing else, it's a test of whether you are a legitimate generalist or
0: just uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of grit and persistence. It's almost like own a vertical first and then go horizontal. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: That it's it's entirely possible that you pick the wrong thing at first, but at least you want to give up because you have pushed yourself to some kind of limit rather than because you ran into some random obstacle.
0: Do you buy the Scott Adams um, advice of find sort of the intersection of two or three things that you were best at even if you're not best at any of the those things scott adams of course was you know pretty good at comics and pretty good at i guess i don't even know what the other thing is business writing
2: yeah i think i think his argument was that he
1: is funnier than average and a better artist than average and that he knew a lot about business because he spent all day in a cubicle so yeah um he his argument it works good as a follow as a, a backup plan because really it is a little bit lame to to build your entire life around finding this sort of random Venn diagram. On the other hand, um, it is a good way to to specialize without being the absolute best at something. So I would view it as as reasonable advice on average, but it's also advice that will make you slightly above average, but not necessarily excellent. Also, if, it can make you really, really excellent if it turns out that you do it at the right time. So in Scott Adams' case, the, the economics of cartooning were really, really good in the 80s through the 90s. There were lots of daily newspapers. They were all printed in color. Um, so if you were a cartoonist and you got widely syndicated, then you could make a lot of money at this very scalable job. Whereas now, cartooning is more something that people have to do because they actually love it. A lot of daily papers have had declining circulation for a decade plus. Um, the, the newspaper is getting smaller. The printing budget is getting lower. So he did have the right timing um, when he managed to wrap those interests into the same project, and then he he turned himself into more of an online brand. Like I don't I don't think I've encountered Dilbert in a news in a physical newspaper in a decade or more but uh I, I do see scott adams on twitter or see links to his writing or see yes yeah,
0: he he's managed to sort of like it's almost like uh you know i have this friend who was an actor in mean girls um <laughs> he was one of the he's the gay guy in mean girls and he built someone of an audience from that but he hasn't been able to convert it dilbert like dilbert is relevant but everyone's like oh yeah that's the guy from dilbert and he managed to like transfer that like initial, maybe social capital with a celebrity capital into something else, i.e. predicting Donald Trump's rise. (laughs)
1: Yeah, he he has this weird combination of being overconfident on politics. Um, I'm talking to Scott Adams, although this applies to Trump too. Overconfident, but actually directionally right when everyone else is leaning the other direction so he manages to be able to say that he did call it but also to have been able to make a huge huge splash at the time and i know scott adams has written about he has his own theory of rhetoric it's tied in with his theory of hypnosis and so he has this pseudo argument for why that the facts don't matter that when he said landslide it was actually a sort of marginal victory like it it was an electoral college victory and that's all that matters in the current system. But um, it certainly wasn't the kind of landslide that Adams was hinting would happen. But, if he'd been one of several people saying Trump actually is more likely than you think to win, but he's still probably going to lose, that wouldn't have been especially interesting, whereas Adams could dominate uh, at least the Twitter news cycle by saying, no, there's a 100% chance that Trump wins in a massive, massive landslide.
0: One other thing that you've thought quite a bit about is uh, finance uh, as a more metaphor for everything and uh, transaction costs is the reason that metaphor is limited. Why don't you unpack what you mean by that?
1: Sure. So the first half of that is that finance is full of these really robust metaphors for any kind of human activity where you have a known upfront outlay and some uncertain distribution of future returns, whether that's a distribution over time or, or magnitude, whether that's a distribution where you have capped upside or unlimited upside, whether it's a situation where your exposure to some phenomenon keeps rising as it does better or your exposure goes up as things get worse. So um, it's basically for any, any kind of career decision or a lot of political decisions or um, any almost any decision in your life, you can think of it in terms of financial theory. You can ask yourself, am I Buying a call option? Am I selling a call option? Um, am I making a loan? Am I doing a swap or something even more elaborate than that? Um, so that makes, that makes finance just a really good way to, to think about decisions. Basically, um, a lot of decisions you can think of them in options terms where you are either making a bet that something does better or worse, and you're also making a bet that volatility goes up or it goes down. So if you were to go to law school and get a job at a large law firm, you're, you're betting against volatility. You're betting that the future looks a whole lot like the recent past, just a slightly better version of it. So in that sense, your, your position is sort of analogous to selling puts. Um, if volatility goes up, then you're probably going to, to lose out even if you don't know specifically what source of volatility would cause you, in particular, problems? Um, if you join a startup, very analogous to a call option, you actually care a lot more about volatility than expected value, because the the modal outcome for a startup is that you would have been better off working at Google. So you care about raising the variance enough that there is some remote chance that you make enough money to totally change your life. Or even if you're not caring about the the monetary outcome, it's still arguable that if you worked at Google, you'd have a bigger impact on society because if you take some tiny three pixel shift in one piece of the Google user interface and multiply that by the billions and billions and billions of Google searches that are happening every month, it's probably every day, um, it's the net impact on any one person is minuscule, but the net impact in the aggregate is huge. So to have some aggregate impact, you have to take enormous risk, even if you think that the expected outcome of that risk is actually worse than the outcome of not taking the risk. So that's, that's where I get a lot of the financial metaphors is really from the world of options. But a lot of those metaphors don't perfectly apply. And um, there is fortunately a whole body of economic thought that explains why. Which is um, it's mostly derived from the work of Ronald Coase and um, others who followed in his footsteps. What Coase says is that there is a there's a whole set of legal outcomes, legal uncertainties, where the the ideal way to frame the outcome is to act as if we had these extremely high resolution property rights. So Coase will talk about situations like um, I believe there was a uh, there was a dentist and he would use his drill on patients. Someone opened a factory nearby, the factory had a lot of heavy equipment, the equipment caused vibrations, the vibrations caused the dentist's drill to slip and injure his patients, so he sued the factory. And eventually, a lot of English common law actually reflected this idea that implicitly, there is this property right to a vibration-free environment. And what Coase said, which was really interesting was, we don't actually know in advance whether you should always decide in favor of the dentist, always decide in favor of the factory, or what. But if you treat that as a property right, then you ask, who's the high bidder for that property right? Is the dentist more willing to um, to pay? And is the factory either want to buy better equipment or shut down or relocate? Or would the factory be better off paying the dentist to relocate himself? Um, this leads to Some kind of morally tricky outcomes, like one of the implications of Kosian economic theory is that if there's a factory that's going to pollute a lot, it should probably be located in a poorer part of the country or poorer part of the world because those people would be not willing to pay as much for the factory not to be there. So it can go in some dark directions, but at least it gives you a framework for evaluating this question of if people step on their toes in a way that you didn't think was physically possible. um, What, who's at fault? Is it the toe stepper? Is the person who stuck their toe out? Um, Coase says we should be agnostic with respect to that, but we should create some sort of property right in toe stepping and then decide, who pays and how much they pay, or decide, decide who gets it based on who pays how much. Um, but what Coase what also admits is that the reason that the whole world doesn't function this way is that transaction costs are too high. So um, if I, I live in an apartment building, if one of my neighbors is playing really loud music, in theory, maybe it's worth dollars to the neighbor to play that loud music and it's worth three dollars for me to have a quiet evening so i could knock on his door offering three dollars if he turns off the music and we're both better off but in practice the reason that's not going to happen is that it's extremely awkward like i would pay twenty dollars not to have that conversation so the conversation doesn't happen and in some hypothetical sense i'm twenty dollars richer even though i'm annoyed by the bass um the the transaction cost element of um, of a lot of decisions that you can model as options it comes into play both because you don 't have this totally homogeneous continuum of options you can 't be you can 't choose between this portfolio of well, I want eighty percent of my career. Right now, to be at a big company and 20% to be at a startup, because that's the risk I'm comfortable with. No, it has to be 100% or 100%. Um, there's no no real way to balance it out. And then there are also the emotional aspects of the decision or the qualitative ones that don't quite map to this financialized vision of the world. So maybe you're considering a big company job, you're considering a startup job you think about these two options you run the numbers you decide the expected value of the company job is higher in basically every reasonable scenario but you're passionate about the startup or you really want to work with that team or the startup is in the the same city as your significant other and the company's job offer is happening across the country so you make the decision based on something else And you can always try to put dollar values on it. But at that point, it just gets ridiculous. At that point, what you can do instead is um, you optimize for the qualitative stuff and then you satisfy on the financial stuff.
0: Totally. And um, you know, the crypto uh, community often quotes costs and uh, transaction costs because they're saying they're trying to uh, remove them in some sort of systematic way. Uh, how would you unpack that? Or are you sympathetic to the possibility of doing that?
1: Yeah, I am. Um, it is hypothetically possible to use crypto to create all sorts of interesting micropayment layers, all sorts of interesting machine to machine transactions. You can, you can think of all of these hypothetical market maker type activities that could happen to more equitably or more efficiently distribute the world's computing and informational resources that, that don't happen just because if you're paying 30 cents plus 2% of every transaction, and someone has to consciously choose to do a transaction and has to enter their credit card number that the frictional costs are just too high. Whereas if you could pay in Satoshis and your cost of transferring those Satoshis was zero or close enough to zero that it didn't matter, then then that would be fine. Um, it is it is notable that if you think pre-crypto, there were basically two successful Two globally successful micropayments networks. Uh, one was Google AdWords and the other was the postage stamp. These are both cases where people were routinely spending sub $1 amounts and actually felt like they were getting a good deal and didn't feel like the cognitive burden was too high. But in both cases, those were micropayments platforms that were built by monopolies. In Google's case, it was a company that had a technological and then a distribution monopoly. In the USPS case, because they had a, a government-enforced monopoly on, uh, on first-class mail. So um, what that might tell you is that crypto is um, is step B in a plan, where step A is actually the really hard part, and that you can imagine all these ways to reduce transaction costs, but The the transaction costs only go down if you have a network effect, if you have two parties that both have crypto, are willing to spend crypto, and have services, have demand for trade between each other. And um, at this point, since crypto penetration is so low, it's just really hard to find those cases. The only real exceptions right now are um, either, A, illegal drugs, where it is... um, it is pretty hard to to build a really robust micropayment system because you have the the macro payment of shipping costs and also the the risk of arrest. Um, and then you there's also um, this semi robust uh, microtransaction compatible environment involving margin loans for crypto speculation. But it's always super worrisome to me that the the really exciting applications of all the promise of crypto. Are enabling people to make margin bets on crypto prices that just uh it seems clearly unsustainable and also somewhat disappointing and more dangerously it, it's something that could crowd out more interesting micro payments options
0: uh so how um how do these financial metaphors uh, uh segue into into relationships uh, where you like to use uh, darwinian metaphors <laughs>
2: Yeah, so Darwin is,
1: is super convenient when you're talking about human behavior because you can always back into an evolutionary explanation. Uh, there was a joke on Twitter years ago where someone said that um, the reason evolutionary psychology is so popular is that our, in our ancestral environment, it was extremely high status and would get you access to really high quality mates. <laughs> could always tie any any phenomenon to Darwinism. So yeah, there's there's always this incentive to over apply it. It's it's a theory of everything and um, you can always come up with this ex post explanation for why it all makes sense. Sometimes there's a really, really good explanation for why phenomenon X is compatible with evolution and is like, totally proof that we are all just um, just machines for propagating our genes. And then it turns out that this phenomenon doesn't actually exist. And, and so that's a little bit awkward for evolutionary psychology. But it is true that one of the claims that Darwinian evolution makes is that if you are, um, if you do optimize for the propagation of your genes on the margin, so just in general, that is one of your priorities, that If you, you are in Darwinian competition with everybody else, but if you and one other person have enough kids together, then your largest net genetic investment is in your kids. And that has two effects. One is it means that you have this Darwinian incentive to cooperate with one person. So it's this war of 7 billion people against 7 billion people, except you have one person who you can actually say is cynically, motivated to be on your side but the other thing is that it, it moves your locus of darwinian focus into the future since you're not just optimizing for your life today your immediate genes you're also optimizing for the expectation that your kids will have kids and those kids will have kids and so on so it lowers your discount rate significantly and um, so part of part of my view on on why a um why a committed monogamous relationship is just a really useful piece of social technology, why we should actually be um, really, really cautious about the um, the increasing availability of divorce, or at least the social acceptability of divorce is that, um, that it does align incentives really well, and it gives two people a reason to to build this family unit that's going to persist for a long time. It's going to behave in more pro-social ways. And if you have a lot of people who have this Darwinian alignment in the same direction, then uh, you have a lot of people who have a collectively low discount rate, and that, that seems to be where wealth and civilization come from. Of course, um, the, the irony there is that a lot of civilization, like a lot of artistic and intellectual achievement is not actually produced by people who have really, really um, boring, normie family lives and lots of kids. A lot of it is actually produced by people who move to the big city and are single for a really long time or have these really tempestuous relationships or whatever. So um, it isn't a perfect argument. um, It's very much an argument for a certain set of middle class values rather than this set of... um, more aristocratic or more bohemian values, but it does appeal to me and it is a nice way to map this totally cold, amoral Darwinian calculus to the decision to um, spend the rest of your life with someone you fell in love with and make a family together.
0: Yeah, are you sympathetic to this uh, critique, well I guess to broader critique, one is any institution that is not right, explicitly right wing becomes left and then two that the culture always moves left over time, and that, I was thinking about this in the context of of polyamory, or monogamy seems more of like a rightist, you know, cultural, uh, or conservative cultural institution. And to the extent that the culture always moves left, uh, might your piece be, uh, you know, contrarian, or not on the right side of history? Yeah, (laughs)
1: yeah, yeah, I I could be on the wrong side of history. Uh, History could be on the wrong side of me. We'll see how that goes. I, I would say that, that both of those observations are true, that things tend to move in a leftward direction, that any institution that's not explicitly right-wing does become left-wing over time. Um, the I think when Robert Conquest came up with that observation, he was either explicitly talking about the Ford Foundation or thinking of the Ford Foundation, but if you compare how the Ford Foundation behaves to the the sorts of things that Henry Ford believed, you uh, you definitely would think that Conquest had a point on, on which direction that shift goes. Um, in terms of why it is, there are a couple ways that you can think about that. One is to say that the right is traditionally associated with maintaining things that seem to work, like that's the Steelman argument for the for being conservative like lowercase c conservative, not not strictly for voting Republican, but for having conservative tendencies, is that um, we have this whole set of traditions that have been subject to a lot of evolutionary pressure that people have experimented with all sorts of different social relations and um, forms of government and forms of economics. And the ones that we have today are probably the ones that work, but that's also a recipe for stasis. So you don't want, there, there's, like a, there's a point at which you definitely do not want the conservatives to have won every single debate. And um, certainly certainly, a lot of that, um, a lot of the leftward drift has been good for, for people like me and for a lot of people who I know and care about. So it's uh, it's really hard to, to turn one's back on that. Um, there's this sense in which every conservative, every generation is saying, okay, it's gone this far. And we can't let it go any further than that. And um, then if we look back, Typically, our view is that those conservatives were wrong. But there's also that um, survive versus thrive trade-off where typically the things that make society temporarily more conservative are, these, are major stresses. So if there's a crime wave. People tend to vote much more conservative, much more in favor of law and order. Um, if you ever look at the electoral map in 1972 and wonder why it was just such a blowout for Richard Nixon, you can read the book Days of Rage, read about all of the uh, bombing campaigns and assassination attempts and that were going on in the late 60s, early 70s. And then it sort of makes sense that people would be really freaked out and they would actually really long for this restoration of order. You can go further back and say 19... Um, 1940s, 1950s, people came back from World War II, and they just wanted to be as hyper-normal, and hyper-conformist as humanly possible. Um, So you had this this peak of forming a family, having a bunch of kids, living in the suburbs, having a car, etc., being as conformist as you could possibly be. So that's another case of conservatism being this response to outside stress. So In that sense, you can say that things tend to drift leftward over time if life is good. That does mean that you'll see a positive correlation between more progressive values and more widespread prosperity. It's tempting to view that as causal. It's possible to view that. um, So the, the neutral way would be to say that we fluctuate in terms of how progressive or conservative we are, depending on how well things are doing and that these these two viewpoints are unrelated. The progressive viewpoint would be to say that as society gets more advanced, we're able to more fully support human flourishing and that means being more progressive in all aspects. Um, and then the the conservative counter argument to that would be, no, conservatism is building this enormous reservoir of social and civilizational capital. Progressivism is spending it down over time. And so you do have people who are more materially prosperous, who, might report being happier, but you're actually chipping away at the foundations of that. Um, I'm not sure there's a good way to synthesize that, other than to say that we've had progressives and we've had conservatives since the dawn of human history. There's always been someone on the left and someone on the right. And um, so neither of those traditions would be as durable as they are if they didn't have some useful points to make about the human condition.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's sort of this sort of equal and opposite to the sort of software is eating the world a little bit. We were talking about in the last podcast about egalitarianism and, and meritocracy, and it, it seems you, while conservatives, certainly like libertarians, have lost sort of the culture war or socially, uh, but they, they they've won economically. Um, and uh, as, as the world gets increasingly, you know, meritocratic uh, in e- economically, it gets increasingly progressive socially, and these are uh, sort of constantly in tension. Is that? Way too simplistic. Yeah, around. like
2: clearly, clearly, um,
1: a lot of progressive causes have have triumphed in the culture war. Um, there's there's one sense where you can say you can have this Whig history view of we've been making progress up to this point and that we'll continue making progress, but then it gets kind of nerve wracking because if you if you take things that are socially acceptable today and were not socially acceptable 40 years ago. And you ask yourself, how unpopular were they 40 years ago? Um, how, how unpopular are the things that me and all of my friends think are, are fine 40 years ago? And then you ask yourself, well, what is something that is that unpopular today that I should be supporting now because this is the direction of history? You get to a bunch of pretty weird, uncomfortable stuff. So, one possibility is just that we we've, we've reached some point of moral perfection one possibility is that there's a pendulum it gets it gets really tricky um, it is, you, you can't really trust anyone who has really strong definitive judgments um, anyone who thinks we have it all figured out you have to you have to wonder if they would have said that fifty years ago or two hundred years ago um, would they be saying that if they grew up in um, in Iran or Saudi Arabia or China or somewhere or, or japan like would they would they still have this temperamental trait of saying whatever whatever state we are in today is the the highest moral order that anyone could achieve and it's great. And coincidentally that means that every belief I espouse doesn't get me into any, any sort of trouble, either for being too conservative and reactionary or for being too hyper progressive and libertine. So um yeah it's it's tough to to trust anyone with extremely definitive views and it's, it's very healthy to have a sort of skepticism about whether there is just one direction or whether there's only a direction because there is, there's a narrative around progress for the elements of progress that happen. There's not a narrative that calls it progress if we have enough data points to see that it's fluctuating.
0: It's interesting you know I was saying that they were at odds, but actually there are some places in which they are totally compatible, and maybe dating let's say we're having this conversation of marriage and dating in like ten to fifteen years. Do you have any predictions for uh, how, how things are going to be different
1: so marriage and dating ten to fifteen years from now, I would actually expect people to get fairly burned out on this hyper meritocratic hyper transactional model of dating where finding someone who you want to marry and actually getting married turns into something kind of close to the Ivy League admissions process where you have to do a lot of things exactly right. You have to optimize every element of the process. You have to um, be ready to fully commit to whoever it is who accepts you and you don't actually know in advance whether it'll be the one you really, really wanted or the one you're willing to settle for. It just ends up setting a lot of people up for, for disappointment there's just a point at which having a lot of options and being able to explore all of those options means that you can make a lot of unfavorable comparisons to whatever option you end up picking. Whereas if you don't have as many options and you don't have as much time to sample those options, you have a lot more time to to get to know one person and to to build a relationship with one person. I, there's also the question of whether the, um, whether the dating process should be thought of as uh, as this process of, each person trying to find emotional fulfillment with someone else such that you have two people who are going to each make each other happy in this utilitarian way. Or if what you're actually doing is trying to form a family unit. And so you're optimizing for this future family unit, which you, you do have to build and cultivate. So in that sense, um, marriage is not like the, the actual wedding is not this moment where you celebrate the, the culmination of anything. It's actually the moment where, you um, you throw a big party to recognize that there is an enormous amount of hard work ahead. So it's a um, a little bit more of a a um, little bit more of a Mardi Gras ahead of the long long Lent kind of feeling, rather than just a party.
0: And broadly, if I was to say, how do you think the culture war is going to play out in the next like two decades? Would you have a similar answer, or how would you like you know a, a, a an escalation followed by de-escalation, or how do you how do you think about that?
2: What's go- One of the things that's going on with the culture war
1: is that on both the progressive and conservative sides, people have um, they have these weapons that they can use against the other side, but they can also turn them on each other. So there's um, there's this dynamic within uh, within progressives where there's sort of this um, fractally vicious infighting where you're always trying to prove that someone else who is part of the same progressive movement you are is not as ideologically pure as they should be. That happens a lot to conservatives too. Um, It seems just anecdotally to be a lot more vicious on the progressive side. And progressives are certainly um, very good at at evicting people from um, from conservative public life for, for being excessively conservative. It's just once you know that you can do that, it's really, really tempting to, to go after someone who is a more proximate rival. So what I suspect is that by building all of this offensive social technology, you've just ended up in a situation where everyone is on offense all the time. People will get really burned out. They'll get really sick of it. And there will probably just be this pendulum swing if not towards more socially conservative outcomes, at least towards people having more of a healthy respect for, for what social conservatives are, are trying to say. Like they're, they're not evil. Some of them are, are just cautious. Some of them have extremely thoughtful critiques um, that, that can be boiled down to uh, evil sounding soundbite. But um, there's, just, there's no good reason to think that we've figured it all out right now. There's no good reason to extrapolate whatever trend happened in your lifetime and assume that it's going to happen indefinitely. A lot of these things have to be figured out every generation. And, um, and there, there are some cases where we we get less libertine on certain axes that we just don't think of as, as being, um, being part of someone's civil rights or being just part of the part of the progressive agenda. So, um, one example of that is if you go back to prohibition. Prohibition was a huge progressive cause. Uh, the book *Last Call* actually argues that women's suffrage, as a movement, was basically a political tool to enact prohibition. That, that was that these movements were very closely tied. So, if you were, um, if you, if the Eighteenth Amendment passed, and you were a progressive looking back on recent history, asking about the march of progress, you'd say that. Progress means increased, um, increased suffrage, increased political participation, and it also means banning intoxicating substances. So if we extrapolate forward 10 or 20 years, we'll have higher voter turnout, more educated voters, and coffee will be banned but it didn't happen that way. Um, the, the trend you were extrapolating turned out not to work, but people, people don't think of the, the world today as being socially conservative because liquor stores still exist. In fact, the political valence of substance use has gone in a totally different direction. Um, I would assume that like within within drugs, it, there's there's a little bit of partisan ambiguity. Like I would assume most people who smoke pot are progressive. I would assume most people who do cocaine are pretty conservative, or at least vote Republican. Um, I think they're like Romney Republicans, except on Friday and Saturday night. But um, it it has lost some of its political valence, which means you no longer see it as part of that arc of progress. So if if you're looking ten or twenty years ahead, um, you. If you, are, if you are 10 or 20 years ahead, you might have the same general sense that you have today where we generally progress towards more freedom and more human flourishing. But if you were looking to that point from today, you might be surprised that in some cases, some things have been ejected from what counts as a, a measure of progress and that progress as we measure it in 2020 has actually moved backwards in those domains.
0: Totally. It makes me think of a few things. As, as you know, there are books that tend to get popular in, in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, Sovereign Individual, which we spoke about in, in last time. Uh, Gerard, whose uh, sort of uh, your interest in Gerard has perhaps been very Gerard in itself. Uh, and then also uh, most recently, A Dominion um, by, by Tom Holland, uh, which basically argues that uh, the West is sort of uh, Christianity without Christ um, you mostly got, you know, they like to think it's enlightenment thinkers that weren't religious, but really a lot of it stems back from, from, from Christianity. And, uh, and his, his big concern is that, uh, human rights, um, the foundation without its theological roots is not as strong, uh, that, that it was, it was emboldened by, by Hitler and the Nazis. Cause instead of, uh, the devil in hell, you had, you know, uh, Hitler and, and Germany, Nazi Germany. But uh, as time moves on, we will, you know, forget that too, and and we won't have as strong of a base to to protect uh, protect human rights. Uh, I'm curious if you've if you've heard about Dominion or if you have a reaction to that.
1: Yeah, um, I may get the pronunciation wrong, but Eric uh, Vogelin wrote a lot about this phenomenon about um, Christianity and pseudo Christian ideologies. He has this really interesting framing where he says that. The big ideologies of the 20th century are all actually examples of the the Gnostic heresy of Christianity, where the Gnostics were basically this this subset of Christians who believed that earthly perfection was attainable through human activity. So um, it was sort of not quite, but sort of the idea that heaven is a metaphor for the society we can build on Earth, and. What Vogelin says that was really appealing to people on the left is Nazis were trying to build this, um, Gnostic paradise on earth. It's just the way they define paradise was, um, German, um, very hyper-nationalistic, very, very racially focused, but they did think that they were building some kind of earthly paradise. And then Hobbes made the, uh, the conservatives very happy by saying the communists are trying to build an earthly paradise where it's ruled not by the German Volk but by the worker, wherever that worker is. And then he made everyone really uncomfortable by saying that the West is also trying to build this version of earthly perfection, we're not just splitting the difference between fascism and communism. We're actually doing our own version of heresy. But his, his basic argument was all of us today, all, all major political movements are in fact, Christian heresies that are just so academically and theologically bankrupt, that they don't even realize that that's what they are. Um, He's probably taking it to an extreme, but it is definitely a fun mental workout to explore that. And I do agree that a lot of our beliefs about things like human rights and human limitations do in fact derive from Christian tradition simply because Christianity has been around for so long, it has been the common cultural reference point for so many people in the West for so long, that we don't really realize that we, um, that we have this Christian moral substrate to a lot of our beliefs. Um, it doesn't mean that those beliefs are exclusive to Christianity, certainly a lot of the elements of the Sermon on the Mount appear in, uh, in many other faiths as well. It certainly doesn't mean that anyone in, um, in US politics or European politics adheres especially closely to the christian view although you can push back on that as well and say that, um, that christianity does articulate a a role for the state and a role for the church they're not the same role that you should render unto caesar but that you should be a christian first so in in that sense you can you can you can argue quite um, quite reasonably that we have this christian underpinning that you basically to to build a post-Christian moral framing in the context of, uh, of being the inheritor of this extremely long Christian legacy, you actually have to figure out what the break is between your views and Christianity. And if you try to build your views from first principles, you'll probably end up articulating a bunch of first principles that are straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, and then sort of trying to do that without the divine element, Maybe you'll get uh, pretty far, maybe you won't. There's the, the whole story of Thomas Jefferson trying to create a more morally centered, less supernatural version of Christianity by cutting all of the miracles out of his copy of the Bible and just leaving it as a, a series of parables and moral teachings. But um, Jefferson was um, not exactly Christian in his personal life. So so maybe, um, maybe thinking that hell is real and we'll go there if you engage in certain bad behaviors, maybe that is actually healthy, even if the rules themselves are good rules to follow, even absent any kind of divine inspiration or divine threat.
0: Totally. And is it worth uh, getting to how this relates to financial bubbles <laughs> in the post? Or is it, uh... Yeah.
2: So since religion and, and finance are both related
1: to this question of making immediate sacrifices, having long-term outlooks. They do tie into each other somewhat closely, and then you can even find these more narrow parallels, like when you take your company public, you go to this big building with columns. It looks like a Greek temple. It is in New York, but still the close thing we have to a Greek temple. Um, when you actually take the company public, your assets are locked up, so it's sort of this financial equivalent to fasting for a while to see if you are actually worthy of this this blessing. There are lots of weird little tie-ins, probably because both phenomena have been subjected to a lot of the same evolutionary pressures. So they've ended up recreating the same kinds of behavior in very different contexts.
0: Uh, and you had a post also about what Gerard can teach us about bubbles. Yes. So Gerard had a lot of interesting thoughts
1: on on human behavior, where human motivations come from. Um, the role of jealousy, the role of scapegoating. And really, the, the key insight that he had was that a lot of our desires are not original to us, that we actually develop desires by looking at what other people desire. So you think you want something, but really, you want, you want to be someone else who you think can attain that thing. And um, one of the things that Gerard points out is that in a lot of love triangles in literature, as two people converge on the same object of desire, they get more similar. And the more similar they get, the more it's two people occupying a space that's only big enough for one person. So as they get more similar, they're more likely to come into conflict with one another and um, that conflict is harder and harder to, to reconcile. So that's really easy to see in financial markets in a variety of ways. You can see that People try to emulate successful traders, successful funds. You can see that people will, um, they'll look at one company that did really well in an industry, they'll try to find a smaller company that is following exactly the same path. But there's only room for one of them. So if you think you're investing in the next Amazon, Google, Facebook, et cetera, you're probably investing in a company that is going to have far inferior economics, and you're probably paying too much because other people are engaged in this same behavior. So that's one piece of Girard and Bubbles. But another one is that Girard talks a lot about the scapegoating mechanism. So this is the idea that in a lot of cultures we go through these cycles where we something goes wrong in the culture. Gerard thinks it's it's generally due to mimetic desire, but sometimes due to external pressures. We find someone who we decide is more powerful than we thought, but also has used their power incorrectly and has caused all these problems we join together in this collective act act of violence we um since gerard is mostly talking in this case about um about either ancient history or um or some some tribes that anthropologists studied more recently um the the cataclysmic violence um generally does involve murdering them and then we sort of cover it up we um we lie about what we did and why we, we take the story and turn it from a story of a human being who we picked out and decided was, was evil for some reason and had to be killed to this story about a god who, uh, or a, a godlike human or a god king or something who was sacrificed or taken into heaven or died in some other very cosmically, theologically satisfying way. Um, the, the scapegoating mechanism now is a lot less violent, but there is this tendency after a financial bubble ends to try to find specific people to blame. Now, where this gets really uh, paradoxical, which I it's, it's always been there, but it's something that I got from reading Girard, was that the the process of taking a bubble and blaming some one person or blaming a small number of people for the collapse of the bubble it's exactly backwards. Bubbles start when there's some innovation, either an innovation in capital markets or an innovation in the real economy that leads to a lot of rapid wealth creation. Eventually, too many people are chasing the same assets. Prices get all out of whack and then prices collapse. But in that model, it's um, the, the ordering is basically the opposite of the scapegoating ordering so in that model of bubbles you start out with something that only a small people believe is viable whether it's um, junk bonds in the 70s tiny number of people were trading them it turned into a huge market or mortgage-backed securities in the 80s and 90s um it starts out with a small number of people you could also look at uh, anyone who was starting an internet company before 1995 really really um niche interest it's a small number of people who are actually interesting and distinctive and then at the peak of the bubble everyone thinks that it's a good idea to invest in these things so everyone is participating so we should actually reverse the order we should say that you you can blame a small number of people for all the wealth that was created and then all of us need to share the blame for all the wealth that was destroyed at the end but that's just not the way that humans work and gerard articulates a lot of the uh, the psychological epicycles that drive that consistent behavior.
0: Are you more sympathetic to to uh, Austrian economics? Uh, the when people <laughs> talk about uh, bubbles, they often uh, say um, you know that they're created by by government action uh, or by by monetary policy or fiscal policy, even though while well, they purport to be trying to fix boom and bust.
1: I think the Austrian model is a a really elegant way to describe some aspects of the economy and human behavior. Um, It doesn't strictly make predictions, so it doesn't end up being a good predictive model. What I tend to do, and this is going back to the fox versus hedgehog thing, is I tend to have a bunch of little heuristics and little parallels that I can apply in a lot of different contexts to to build up a sort of impressionistic picture of what's going on. So uh, I think a lot of the Austrian models are, are helpful. They're helpful for articulating a baseline, but they um they, it, to the extent that Austrian economics tells you that all bubbles are due to either fiscal or monetary policy, that's just not true. There, there are forms of irrational human behavior. I, I, I think some people who would describe themselves as Austrian will, will concede this. They will say that um, government bureaucrats are not the only people who can spend way too much of other people's money. Bankers and hedge fund managers can do that just fine. So in that sense, um, being an Austrian doesn't strictly mean that you would view all bubbles as being caused by the government, but it's certainly going to be your bias. I guess I, I go back to the empirical question of, do people who are strict Austrians tend to get rich predicting when bubbles will happen and how big they will be? And the answer is generally no. Like, they... Austrian economists have predicted the collapse of every bubble that's collapsed since since Austrian economics started, but they um, they tend to predict it a bit too early, and so they tend to they tend to become um, cynical early and then really bitter as as the people who ignored them keep making more and more money and then um, very triumphalist when it ends. But they they still in many cases would have been better off betting on the bubble and going along for the ride and maybe selling. A up rather than having their assets mostly in gold
0: i'm curious in the next you know 50 to 100 years uh, whose stock in economics uh <laughs> history is going to either rise or fall you know is, is Mises or any of the austrians going to become more important or relevant uh or, or stay the same as in irrelevant uh you had a post about alan greenspan's legacy i'm curious how, how you, you think about that how that's going to evolve uh and any other uh thoughts on, on the on the topic
1: yeah, so Greenspan's legacy is really interesting because it, it ties into this claim that you you can have these really clean, pure, first principles-based models, but to actually get anything done, you have to make a lot of compromises. And Greenspan, from um, the Sebastian Malvi biography that I read, it, he made a ton of moral compromises. Um, I, I did not realize the extent to which he was... Um, at various points, Nixon and Reagan's hatchet man on, uh, on economic issues, but also on personnel issues with respect to the Fed and other economic policy-making institutions. So Greenspan, he's, um, he ended up being less of an economic thinker than I had thought, although clearly a brilliant guy, but a lot more of a political operator than I'd realized. And I think that's a, a useful lesson is that if you if you could choose, if you wanted to make a positive difference in the world and you felt like your views were right, if you could choose between having a much, much better articulation of whatever those views are versus being a lot better uh, a wielder of political stilettos to actually get those um, get those um, policies put in place, that you might actually choose the more cynical Machiavellian version just because there's, there's no point in having... Really, really brilliant theorists, whose theories never get implemented, there is a point in having people who make a number of compromises but actually get the job done um, there's also with greenspan um, there's there will the debate over his record in the 90s will never truly end because at one level he did keep rates lower than than people. Um, thought they would naturally need to be. He had good arguments for why this wouldn't lead to runaway inflation. It didn't lead to runaway inflation in consumer prices, but clearly asset prices were quite inflated by the late 90s, and the Fed could have uh, could have done more to prevent that. Um, it's interesting to look at that point in the 90s, though, and and ask why Greenspan was so confident that the economy was actually doing better than the official numbers indicated. There are really two phenomena that were going on. Um, they, there's one that he emphasized, which was really a more progress-oriented one, and then there's one that he didn't emphasize as much that is a lot more zero-sum. So, The progress-oriented argument that Greenspan made was when we look at productivity statistics in service jobs, we don't actually see a huge increase in output per hour, but it just doesn't pass the smell test that lawyers who went from dictating memoranda to a typist who would then type it up and mail it to the client in a physical letter, that if those lawyers stop doing that and start producing Word documents and just emailing them directly to the client, or if... um, if financial analysts and accountants used to be using manual calculators and copying numbers into um, into physical books and that now they're doing everything in Excel and they're doing it a lot faster, it just doesn't, it doesn't make intuitive sense that uh, the productivity in those sectors isn't just soaring. So he argued that we probably just don't have a good way to measure it. We don't know things like... Um, how how much better surgery is if a surgeon gets more effective and if the combination of a surgeon and better surgical tools leads to um, just much more pleasant outcomes for the patients. We don't have a good sense of exactly how much more productive a lawyer or a stockbroker or an accountant is if they have these new technological tools. So we might as well assume that the economies, that the GDP numbers and the productivity numbers understate the total growth in productivity. But the other thing that kept Greenspan really safe from runaway inflation was the rise in globalization throughout the 80s and 90s. So China in particular was exporting tons and tons of low-value added goods to the U.S. There was basically no inflation to negative inflation in, in things like apparel and furnishings in toys and electronics. And um, but that was not... That was certainly um, positive, some in the utilitarian sense, that a lot of very poor people in China were getting richer and joining the global middle class, whereas a lot of people in the U.S. who were um, not rich by U.S. standards, but in the global 95 to 99 percent, were losing their manufacturing jobs because those jobs were being offshored. the The net effect of that was that um, inflation was low because there was just an unlimited supply of labor in China at the time. And that meant that faster consumer spending did not lead to these price shocks and bottlenecks that used to percolate through the economy. But it did mean that all of this economic growth was making the U.S. more and more tied to other countries. So in a way, having a looser monetary policy led to better GDP numbers, but also led to the U.S. being a little bit less able to determine its own economic destiny. The,
0: uh, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier. You were talking about uh, marriage. Uh, you've also written about uh, how uh, your thoughts on homeschooling and uh, your kid, uh, your kids. And so I'm curious how you think about uh, the future of, of K-12 and the future of higher ed. You also written about how YC is uh, and you know, Lambda are unbundling uh, higher ed. Uh, How do you think, like, are we going to have parallel institutions, or is not much progress going to be made in the next 10 to 20 years in education, or how do you think about that?
1: I think in the aggregate that homeschooling is just not going to make a material dent in K through 12 education in the near future. You have a lot of vested interests. You have um, a lot of people who have structured a lot of their lives around having their kids fairly busy um, during the workday. So there's just a... There's a lot of um, institutional croft around it that makes it hard to get rid of. That said, I do think that anyone who was designing education for kids today would not derive the U.S. public school system or even U.S. private schools. They wouldn't derive that from first principles. That isn't what they would figure out was the right way to do things. I think if you were looking at the kinds of jobs that people have today that they find really fulfilling, you'd say that what kids need to learn to be able to do is to find a topic they're really passionate about, dive into it in as much, much depth as possible, just nerd out to the maximum extent possible, and then find something else once once they've um, either reached the limit of their abilities or their interest has petered out. A lot of topics, you would, you'd think that the result of that would be that someone would be way ahead of their grade level on a few things and then way behind on others. But a lot of these topics tie into each other really well. So if, if your kid gets obsessed with ancient Rome, you you can just talk about military history. You can draw these maps, you can talk about the seizures and how they were, but you can also talk about engineering. You can walk them through the math of why an aqueduct doesn't fall down also through the math of just how many aqueducts would you need and how much uh, how much grain has to get shipped from Egypt to Rome before or less people start starving and then start rioting you can also teach them some chemistry such as why um, why lead pipes were um, a really uh, were really popular when uh, when engineers were trying to figure out what material to use but um, didn't necessarily have great results for uh, for the people who were drinking water out of them. You can also talk about the Roman legal system. You can talk about Latin. And um, through learning some Latin terminology, you can see how that has um, has come down to us today. You can also look at um, this sort of meta approach of saying a lot of people get really obsessed with Rome. They try to pretend to be Romans. Um, they, they have this exaggerated idea of what Rome was, but then if you go back to the original Romans, they were basically doing the same thing. So the U.S. founding fathers—they all had these Latin pseudonyms when they were arguing with each other. They were—they all had these really grandiose Roman larping approaches to um, to public buildings and to to job titles and, and things like that. And um, in some ways, that's kind of goofy. But in another sense, the Romans were doing the same thing. It was—it was, it was uh, Rome was originally a gang that took over several hills and then they decided to turn themselves into an empire through iterations. So they basically wrote this um, semi-fake history of who they were and how they became what they were at that date and then gave themselves a, an artificial inheritance to live up to. So there are just a lot of lessons you can get from, from any one topic. There are a lot of ways, if you are a parent and you're trying to guide your child into becoming an intellectually fulfilled adult, there are a lot of ways to, to get them to explore all the nooks and crannies of these ideas. But it just, uh, it strikes me that I would have been a lot happier if um, in some points of my childhood I could spend all of my time nerding out about Ancient Rome, and at other points in my childhood, i would spend all of my time nerding out about physics or the Apollo program or uh, or math or some other totally different topic.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, pseudonyms. Uh, segue into I'm curious how you think about the future of identity. Are we uh, is it going to be a pseudonymous uh, economy where, as biology says, you don't put all your uh, money into one bank account and you're not going to put all your uh, reputation into one name? Or uh, how is the concept of identity and reputation going to Evolve over time.
2: Pseudonyms
1: are a tricky topic. They're they're very leaky. Like you you can't really get unouted once you're outed. Um, pseudonyms also require a substantial amount of work. So um, since you mentioned biology, I, I think it's appropriate to use the crypto analogy that any identity, whether it's your real world identity or a fake identity and whether that fake identity is your, um, your MMORPG character or your, your anonymous blog, it takes a lot of time to get any results that anyone would care about. So you know anyone can just post something anonymously on 4chan or, or a site like that or on Reddit or something, but no one will notice and no one will care If you post something that is interesting because it's information that other people didn't have then it um, it really narrows down who you could have been so if you go on reddit and you say i heard i don't know the ceo of google say x about china if that turns out to be true then Anyone who also heard that conversation is immediately asking which of the five people in the room posted this on Reddit, and uh, they will probably pretty quickly figure out who it was. Now, you might think that if you use a pseudonym to just say really insightful things, even though you don't have any special information, that maybe that is, um, that's a useful way to cover your downside and uh, and still get the upside of being a, a good commentator. I think um, anyone, who, anyone who read the book Ender's Game before they first used the internet, which applies to me, um, used to think that was the case because Ender's Game has this whole subplot where uh, a super genius brother and sister team up to write this blog and the blog ends up just totally redefining global conversation. Um, I think there was a, an XKCD parody of this where he just imagines it as a WordPress blog with zero comments, zero interest. That's what it would actually happen because... Um, as as a lot of people in in tech have noticed, superior technology, better product is important, but if you don't have really good distribution, then it doesn't matter. In the marketplace of ideas, really good distribution does involve pedigree or a social network. It's just a whole lot easier if you were a Harvard legacy admit to uh to get your ideas into circulation because you have a lot of friends from school and a lot of people probably owe your parents favors. So your stuff gets published early and often and spread out throughout the world. They're just, they're not that many people who have an impact on the world by having original ideas, except in this really, really indirect way. And, um, if you want to have that kind of super indirect impact where it's not that you are making the essential decisions, it's that you are writing the stuff that's being read by the people who have input into the people who have input into the people who are making these really big decisions, then you just have to have to be aware that your ideas can get filtered into meaninglessness um, that said, I do think that it's it is neat and healthy that it is so so simple to spin up a pseudonym it does become a problem when you can use pseudonyms to harass people or just say really horrible things um that is that is a problem though that a lot of social networks are keenly aware of and they're aware that they need to mitigate it so what i think that means is that there will always be a place online for pseudonymous commentary it will be increasingly segregated from the rest of the internet and um it'll it'll be a sort of internet equivalent to a bad neighborhood. So you can go there, um, you'll, you'll see a lot of bad stuff, maybe you will get in some sort of trouble yourself, but you will also see things you wouldn't see elsewhere. So going back to 4chan, um, if you had happened to be on 4chan the morning that uh, Epstein killed himself or didn't, you would have heard about it, uh, I think something like half an hour before the first news story broke, because someone did actually post around, uh, they did post before the first story hit the wires that he had, um, that EMTs had been called, that he had no pulse, et cetera. But there's just a lot of garbage to filter through. Like um, it's, it's entirely possible that someone posted that every single morning and that one morning they happened to be right.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you talk about, you know, 4chan Reddit, you have a post about how filter bubbles are, are a good thing. Uh, and in important to yes. think because we're seeing sort of, you know, the rise of TikTok, which has an interesting feed is solely based on uh, if the content is good as deemed by an AI, i.e. It, it, you're not uh, punished if you don't have a ton of followers and we can go to TikTok right now, create something really good and it'll go you know, super viral, whereas it's harder on, on YouTube or other or Twitter without an existing audience. Uh, I don't know if that necessarily relates to filter bubbles, but why, why don't you talk a little bit about why filter bubbles are good?
1: Yeah, so the distinction I would draw is between real world filter bubbles and online filter bubbles. So, online filter bubbles can become pathological, not necessarily because you miss a lot of good ideas, but just because they end up indulging your, your most dopamine fueled garbage impulses as a human being and as an infobore. So, it's just really common if I'm on Twitter or on Facebook that. The things that I am most likely to click on are actually just things that I think are really stupid or I can't believe someone would say whatever it is that this article's headline says. Um, And that, of course, trains those algorithms to show me more things that I think are just outrageously dumb. So that does get kind of dangerous. It also gets dangerous if you're clicking on things that Um, are outrageous and dumb but that you happen to agree with and there is a sort of swagger in taking the stupidest caricature of your beliefs and totally buying into it 150 percent but probably not good for anyone's intellectual development but where filter bubbles can be really effective is when you have a group of people who have distinctive and weird beliefs and those those people and those beliefs feed off each other because then you can um, you can get the compound interest of different people exploring and attacking I- an idea from different angles of people um, people who are friendly with each other, implicitly promising that they're they're not going to make fun of you if you say something just incredibly asinine about whatever whatever mars colony you and your your friends are trying to put together or whatever new crypto project you're trying to launch um there that allows you to to make a lot of progress in one specific direction and to to build a little bit of social solidarity with people who can help you implement the idea so um i think a lot of a lot of intellectual revolutions, a lot of political revolutions, they start with a couple people who are willing to hear one another out and willing to take an idea to the furthest extreme that it could be taken. And that does mean that um, if there is social progress in the sense of there are, there are different social arrangements, they may not be optimal, but there's... Um, we can be at a local maximum It can take a lot of energy to get to the next local maximum that um, if if those are valuable, which I think they are, then that basically requires this filter bubble that requires a a group of people without a Heckler's veto to
0: To just keep pushing on the idea until it's inevitable. And the other context in which people have uh, talked about pseudonyms is uh, is, is journalism. You know, people often mention how Ben Franklin wrote about different pseudonyms uh, to sort of attack other pseudonyms. And, and the sort of broader question was was journalism ever great? Uh, you, I'm curious if you want to resp- respond to to that uh, because people often you know uh, you know uh, fondly recall journalism's uh, you know past glory days, either correctly or incorrectly. I'm curious for your view. And then also you've written a little bit about investigative reporting, and I'm curious what the uh, what the future of, of, of journalism there looks like for you.
1: Sure, so in terms of people like Franklin writing under pseudonyms, um, there's, there's a sense in which this modern idea of journalists as being trusted, neutral arbiters of the truth um, it's really more effect, a reflection of the way the economics of content distribution shook out in the middle of the 20th century. Um, when we only had three TV networks, when most cities were single paper monopoly cities, you actually did need to, um, you did need to tell people, you did need to hold journalists to a high standard because there weren't a lot of alternatives. and then as media outlets proliferated, it became a lot more viable for someone to be totally biased and insane and just scream things that other people in the audience would agree with. Um, you certainly saw that with AM radio and then with cable television. Um, AM, for whatever reason, ended up being mostly right wing. I don't know why that is. Maybe maybe Democrats take the subway and the conservatives are the ones stuck in traffic. Um, And then cable ended up being ideologically diverse, but uh, uniformly insane. So once you have all these different viewpoints, and once you can just change the channel, it becomes less essential that any given journalist always strictly adhere to the truth. It becomes more like journalism is a form of entertainment. And it may be that it is, and that it it really should be, that, uh, that journalists, everyone is basically some variant of The Daily Show, where you are entertaining an audience and provoking a reaction. You are using what is actually happening in the world as a hook, but you're in no obligation, you're under no obligation to always strictly dispassionately report what's going on in the world. And that that may be useful because to to choose what to report, you have to have some narrative. You have to have some coherent view of what's going on because otherwise there's just too much to talk about and most of it doesn't matter. So, you you already have to have some underlying viewpoint. You can call it a bias if you want. Um, it may be that when journalists were were totally dispassionate and neutral and whatever, that they were actually still adhering to a narrative. That narrative still had its biases. They they're just not um, not incredibly transparent to any of us. I don't know exactly what those biases would be, but um, they they were probably there. So now we to some extent fragmented media and biased media is is more transparent um maybe you were never actually getting the truth but at least you know that you're being lied to and you know something about the agenda of the people who are lying to you and why why do you need to uh, watch the news or read the news anyway it's uh, very unlikely to affect your life um certainly very unlikely for you to have any direct effect on it i would assume the people who are actually powerful, are able to affect the course of world history, are probably getting their news more manually filtered by people whose job is to provide an informed view to uh, presidents, prime ministers, et cetera. Um, there's there is a case, um, or there is a subset of news that is a lot less biased, but also a lot more boring, which is financial news. Uh, if you ever try to read an earnings call transcript or an earnings press release for from a company that you don't follow in an industry you don't care about, it is just gonna put you to sleep instantly. It's um, it's just really, really not, not fun to read because, the actual news, the actual developments, are all these really tiny incremental things. There's there's not a lot of human drama, it's just we thought sales would grow 3% this quarter, it was actually 2.5%, here are the five reasons why. Now, if you do have a financial interest there, you care very deeply, and and the difference between 2.5% and 3% can actually make or break your year, but it's, um, it's, it's just not that fundamentally interesting. So you can actually view financial news, um, you can view SEC filings as a case study in what news looks like when it's stripped of an agenda, which is, there's too much of it, most of it doesn't matter, you scroll until you fall asleep, and then you switch to, um, to reading whatever news site, HuffPo, Breitbart, whatever, that actually just uh, gets you jazzed up because it's all outrageous and insane, and uh, you want to inject it straight into your veins.
0: Uh, Ezra Klein has a book out called Why We're Polarized. I'm not sure if you've paid attention to to it or or reviews of it, but uh, why are we polarized, and How how do you see that changing or not changing?
1: One reason we're polarized is transparency and one reason is slower growth. So transparency, since it is cheaper to start a news site in some sense, like it's cheaper to start a news outlet in some sense, there are more news outlets that appeal to more niche interests. So um, instead of CBS, ABC, NBC, you have, this enormous long tail of different sites and then you have social networks that aggregate them that aggregate the most exciting which is usually the most outrageous and um, counter informative content from each of them so that you end up seeing it so we've just we do have this system where it is really good it's it's really easy to get the propaganda you like it's also really easy to get the dumbest conceivable person who disagrees with you um, into your feed, and it is somewhat harder to track down the propaganda that you don't like. And um, you can actually track down the thoughtful, nuanced commentary from from the ideologies that you don't like. Usually the stuff that gets published in books is going to be more thoughtful and um, more reasonable than the stuff that gets published in blog posts, all else being equal, just the, produ- the higher production costs set more of a quality floor there. So you can track down the more thoughtful version, but it's actually kind of aggravating to find out that the people who seem to be totally dangerous and insane are actually reasonable people with slightly different premises from you. Um, it's almost scarier. They, they go from, um, from just being demonic enemies to, to being these creepy pod people who sound just as reasonable as you think you sound, but uh, come to uncomfortably different conclusions. So that 's one reason we 're polarized. Another reason we 're polarized though is that when the economy is growing quickly, there 's just more wealth to go around, so a lot of problems um, A can be solved by, by sharing some of the wealth, whether that 's sharing wealth to shareholders and landowners or sharing wealth to, to workers or sharing wealth um, to the unemployed that 's just a lot easier to do when there 's more wealth every year it 's also a lot easier when the economy is growing to To have giveaways to different parties that just happen in the future but get decided on right now, so that includes entitlement spending, that also includes pension funds, but it also includes corporate debt, so um, the the investor in corporate debt is expecting money to get paid to them over the over the long term, so that is also a promise of um, tomorrow 's economic output rather than today 's so there 's when the economy's growing, um, it is easier to borrow money. It is easier for the government to to choose entitlement programs that have a, a large actuarial cost but not a significant immediate cash outlay and that does keep people happy but if if growth slows down, if those pension funds are underfunded, if the debt has to get restructured, if there 's just no way that the country can support the Medicare liabilities that it has today then then you start having um, you start having something closer to a crisis. And one of the dynamics of this crisis that's particularly bad for government is that uh, the government doesn't really have a concept of a, uh, an organized liquidation. So in corporate America, once it gets to the point where a company obviously can't pay its bills, the last thing you want is to just have the company pay out cash to whoever presents claims first until there's nothing to pay out and then the company to liquidate all of its assets to make good on other claims that just encourages everyone to collect as quickly as they can that that encourages them to force the company to liquidate um, as quickly as possible so they get paid what you actually want to do in that situation which is what bankruptcy law is for is you say okay the company has obligations that total x but the most it can pay is half of x so Some people are going to get one haircut, Um, some people are going to get a different haircut. Some people will get totally wiped out, like um, shareholders may get wiped out, but um, creditor like um, suppliers and employees will get minimal to no losses on their debts. It's just a very organized way to prevent a company from getting liquidated if its problem is that. It, it's a good business, but not as good a business as it looked when it got a bunch of fixed obligations. And the U.S. government doesn't really have that. We, we don't have some process where we say, okay, we're going to default on 30% of Social Security, 20% of Medicare, and 80% of defense
0: contracts or something like that. It'd be
1: nice if we did, but um, governments just aren't set up to
0: do that. Peter Thiel's argument on the Eric Weinstein podcast was that uh, the importance of economic growth or one of the reasons it's super important is that it curbs violence, basically. But uh, but also, you know, it tends to increase economic inequality because the rich getting richer faster than the poor are getting richer. And people say that rising economic inequality also creates violence. So what's uh, what's better for reducing violence, economic growth or uh, or inequality, and are, are concerns about inequality overstated, or how should we think about this?
1: It is it is really tough to say because if you look at research like. Um, Piketty's research, for example, on economic growth and, uh, and the returns on assets. Piketty has this argument that in many cases, returns on assets are greater than growth. So over time, the rich end up owning all the assets. But if the rich are earning interest on their assets and they're not consuming all of that, then we end up with uh, with less consumption inequality than wealth inequality, so in terms of how you live day to day it's it's not as egregiously unequal as it looks on paper also um if if rich people are Earning high returns relative to economic growth, then over time, they're a larger proportion of the economy. So, economic growth slowly approaches the return on wealth. So, in that sense, if you combine the lower marginal propensity to consume with the higher return on uh, on rich people's assets, you actually end up with this view where we implicitly entrust more and more of our, our collective wealth to the people who get the highest return on it. And then we We do owe money on paper, but we still get nice things that that may or may not be a sustainable outlook but the reason that we don 't know whether or not it's sustainable is that historically it doesn 't last so with basically with the exceptions of the United States and Australia, every country has had this near total drawdown in financial wealth at some point in its history so um in the US, like nominally, the Great Depression was that because the Dow dropped 90%, but the Dow circa 1929 is a lot more analogous to the NASDAQ today. It was the Dow Jones Industrial Average when industrials were a fairly recent category of, um, of equity investment. And a lot of people would have had bonds or real estate, other assets that didn't get hit as much. And there was significant deflation at the time. So in real terms, Dow didn't drop quite as much. So basically, the US and, um, and Australia, which is a fairly small country, so it doesn't really matter in terms of determining the narrative, um, we don't have this experience of the massive wealth drawdown. But for every other country, that is basically how the reset happens, that when times are good, the return on wealth is greater than the growth in overall GDP. So over time, the wealthy as a class end up with a uh, larger share of the country's resources, and then there's a war or a plague or something, and that all gets wiped out. But there's also the question of how permanently it gets gets wiped out. So there are, um, there are not data points everywhere, but there are enough data points to get suspicious where wealth actually seems to persist in families, even if the nominal wealth gets totally wiped out. So um, one of the case studies there is that someone came up with a list of, I think, aristocrats in uh, Renaissance Florence or the wealthiest merchants in Renaissance Florence and then looked at the uh, average per capita wealth of people with those surnames today and found out that even, even after multiple wars and conquests and all sorts of upheaval and, uh, and several centuries, that even then you were more likely to be well off, you're more likely to have a high-status job and uh, a postgraduate degree if you happen to be descended from one of these people. Um, Another example of that is uh, the descendants of wealthy slave owners in uh, post-Civil War South. They ended up being wealthier than average, even though a lot of their land got expropriated, a lot of their their wealth was was burned down or otherwise destroyed. Um, The Confederate dollar was inflated into being worthless. So they have probably a near total drawdown in wealth, but we're still, richer than average after that. Uh, you can also look at the Chinese Communist Party. A lot of senior members of the party today are descended from senior members um, a generation or two ago. A lot of the uh, senior members of the Chinese Communist Party are actually uh, people who spent a lot of their childhood doing forced labor on farms because they were part of the intellectual elite who Mao sent off to the countryside. So there's just um, there are a lot of examples of persistence of wealth even after this massive drawdown Um, one of the more interesting ones is um this book uh, a farewell to alms which looks at english property records so we have really extensive detailed records of english um, english people's net worth and what the what the author of that book discovered was that there was this cohort of people in england who tended to have a lot of kids, um, tended to to breed above replacement levels. They have a lot of descendants today. And they were not actually the super rich. So the poor um, tended to have a ton of kids, super high infant mortality. So they were stuck at the the worst part of the Malthusian trap. Um, The rich did not have quite as many kids, but they also had an extremely high murder rate. So a lot of rich people did not live long enough to have big families because they were stabbing each other. Um, the people who did end up having big families and who also had somewhat lower infant mortality rates than average were the, the craftsmen, merchant, the merchants, the, the middle class. So those those people are disproportionately likely to be the people who uh, the average English person is descended from today. And a lot of people have, in this really roundabout, indirectly inherited a lot of those very middle class values. So in England today, um, as far as I know, it is fairly uncommon to uh, to murder anyone in a duel over your mistress over the fact that you both have the same mistress or something so um so in, that's another way in which wealth gets um retained over a really long period is, is this set of cultural norms where the cultural norms that keep you alive and that prompt you to save money um over in the distant past would have led you to have more kids and at present
0: just lead you to have more money what do you think should be the this big question should be, should be the proper role uh, slash scope for for Wall Street and uh, finance broadly uh, and or uh, government and what do you think is the strongest uh, justification for each
1: sure so they actually serve the same purpose, which is to coordinate a lot of people's behavior in order to pursue some distant uncertain objective so um they there are a lot of a lot of cases where you can have the same role performed by one or the other, and it almost doesn't matter. Like uh, Milton Friedman had this point a while ago about Social Security, where he said that it's actually a combination of several government programs. One is a mandatory savings program. One is a regulation that you must invest your money in a specific annuity. And then another is that this annuity must be issued by the government at some return of X. But really, you could separate those. So you could imagine a system where you have the same payroll taxes. It's also money that you can't touch until you're 65. But every, every year when you pay these payroll taxes, you get a bunch of direct mail from Fidelity and Charles Schwab and State Street and everyone else. And they all tell you, if you put your money with us, here's what you'll get when you turn 65, and here's how the payout changed based on various life events, and here's the actuarial probabilities of these things happening. So you could imagine a system where you, um, you privatize one end of Social Security, and then you keep the system in place, and there's actually no real effect on anyone except that instead of Social Security being managed by bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., it's actually being managed by bureaucrats in Boston or Manhattan but you get roughly the same outcome. Um, There's this striking parallel between financial bubbles and big successful government projects where um, they both coordinate a lot of behavior that is... Optimal if it happens in parallel, but not that useful if it happens in sequence. So, if you look at the Apollo program, you could imagine the components of a spacecraft being invented over a 50 year period. So, um, we by the year 2000 have the capability to land on the moon, except that if you invent the rocket and there's no lander, then there's no market for your rocket, so you go bankrupt. Um, If you invent the guidance computer, but there's nothing to guide, same deal. It's, It's only viable to invent each of these components if you know that the project is going to literally achieve liftoff on some date, you can look at the, um, you can look at Moore's law and the PC revolution as something similar. So, um, One of the reasons that Bill Gates is so rich today is that he realized that um, computers kept getting faster, they kept getting cheaper. That means that if you build something that is barely usable on today's computers, you wait three years and it's the best product on the market and runs just fine on the computers two generations later. So um, people like Gates were able to consistently um, they were able to build for that next generation of computers, and because everyone knew that Gates and his ilk were building applications for much more powerful computers than existed at that point, they knew to build those powerful computers because they knew they'd have a, um, they'd have a product that was compatible with the newest and latest and greatest software. So financial bubbles and governments are good at coordinating behavior, and then the question is just... Um, which one is better equipped to coordinate which kind of behavior so if you are trying to um to race to cure some disease that is um really really common in extremely impoverished parts of the world um probably it's not going to be an especially hot ipo if the company that cures that disease goes public but it is something that would would make someone in the government feel really proud that they had done something good with their life if they're able to, to to solve that problem so maybe that is something the government should do but if the question is, we've invented this cool technology, maybe it was by a university, maybe it was a government research lab, but um we need it to be something that is or we, we think that the best thing for the world is if this is something that's in everyone's home that is really cheap and um, that everyone can use, that's something that the private sector is really good at, is, is taking technology that works and uh, finding a way to market it, finding a way to brand it, finding a way to sell it to as many people as possible. Um, both of those systems do have cases where they break down. So um, both the, go- the government and the private sector can get into these vicious cycles where they exist to solve the problems. So they're sort of um, sort of ranchers or farmers where they keep growing a new crop of the same problem and then selling a solution to that problem so um, in that sense you could view some police forces in monsanto as being in the same business where the police forces are are run in such a way that there's always this low-level crime problem and so they always have an excuse to to be active in addressing that problem monsanto gives you something that um, gives you seeds that grow really fast but they they get devoured by insects unless you also buy the monsanto pesticides so it's um in both cases they they become part of this epiphenomenon where there's a problem they monetize the solution or they benefit from solving it but they also benefit from keeping the problem around um there's there's not a good heuristic for deciding who does what because a lot of it depends on uh, on cultural factors, whether that's um, at a national level, like the U.S. is just way more comfortable with, um, with risk than a lot of other countries, or certainly way more comfortable with risk than um, in most European countries. So we would, we would tend to have a bias towards the private sector because we're a lot more okay with people going bankrupt. Um, but there's also skill gaps. So... Governments that can that can hire the smartest and hardest working people, they should probably have more power and responsibility. And that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy where, if um, if the government is where ambitious projects get launched, then it's where ambitious people go. It's pretty hard to break out of that cycle, and it's probably going to vary also by field. So um, I'm, I'm I don't have a lot of exposure to the the healthcare industry, so I actually don't know the extent to which a, um, a government funded lab or an academic lab or a private sector lab would be the place to go. If I really, really wanted to cure diseases, I could see plausible arguments for for any of those. Like I'm sure if I wanted to cure baldness, then I don't want to work in a private sector lab because they're, they're definitely going to be the ones who are good at, uh, at selling that kind of, Sure, But um, for, a lot of, for a lot of diseases, for a lot of other types of medical research, it's not immediately clear to me that the private sector would have the right timeframe and outlook to be the place where the smart people go.
0: Have you, um, have you come across Glenn Wells' arguments basically calling for uh, increasing returns? Uh, you know, the idea that you know, we're basically, we either have private property on one extreme or public uh, on the other extreme and, and nothing sort of in the middle uh, to take into account sort of the interweaving Nature of both of them, for example, uh, you know, public, uh, all the problems with public choice, um, uh, but but in private, also private property, also the idea that hey, when my house gets uh, more expensive, it's not because any work I did necessarily; it's because the community uh, made it more valuable, and yet they don't see any of the value from that. Or or when Facebook gets really big, it's because of a lot of data that was collected by people um, who, who don't who didn't sort of capture any any of the value that they helped create. Um, are, are you somebody to, to sort of re? redefining organizations to better uh, align incentives like private property does but also um, sort of distribute the gains like uh, like public uh, tr- tries to do
1: so I would push back somewhat on the notion that um, that either of those group well that either either of the claims on returns are as cut and dry as they sound. So in the case of someone who buys a house and the value of that house goes up because of other things that happen in the neighborhood, the price of that house reflected the expectation at the time that they bought it of whether or not those things would happen. So to some extent, they're actually um, getting paid a risk premium where if the neighborhood had gotten really bad or if the, the biggest employer in that town had gone bankrupt, then they would have lost a lot of money. And I don't think there would be a strong case for um, subsidizing them or making them whole. So to some extent, you can say that um, that's just how things shake out, that uh, a house is an uncertain investment. Um, in Facebook's case, I think it's a lot more dubious to argue that the people who gave Facebook their data didn't get anything of value out of it because the way that you give Facebook data is by using the product and by being logged in all the time on every device that you ever use. So. Um, the fact that that's a common kind of behavior indicates that people get a lot of value out of Facebook and in fact that people are, are getting this huge consumer surplus. Um, like one, one useful way to measure that is the fact that Facebook's ad revenue is growing a lot faster than their usage, which indicates to me that Facebook is growing their business by capturing more of the surplus value that they create, which indicates that there was a lot of surplus value to be captured years and years ago. Um, That said, you can solve some of those problems or align some of those incentives through pretty simple stuff. So on the land side, um, a land value tax does seem like a a pretty obviously good idea, just because it is true that there are a lot of positive and negative externalities that are not well captured or that are not easy to capture um, except through owning land. So. To some extent, a land value tax would actually align incentives really well where you would not be super happy or super disappointed if the government did something that affected the value of your land because the that the change in that value would be reflected by a change in the taxes that you paid. So that that is probably the closest that I could get to to being on board with that. It's in the US at least, we have this long history of businesses that are pseudo public pseudo private and they just all end up being huge disasters like um, in in the 1970s we had this really tightly regulated savings and loan industry and the regulations didn't allow the uh, the snls to react appropriately to changes in interest rates so basically savings and loans would uh, borrow at three 3%. So they pay 3% of deposits. They would lend at 6%. And um, they would lend for the long term. So they're they're basically betting that long term interest rates don't go up too much. And they would make pretty safe bets. But um, long term interest rates did go up a lot. They, they eventually went up past 15%. So at that point, you uh, if you're an SNL, you're massively underwater. And what the government did was it loosened restrictions on their ability to take deposits. It loosened their restrictions on What they could lend to and basically allowed the industry to bail itself out by throwing its way out of the problem so if you have a bunch of loans on your books and the loans are underwater and your equity is actually worthless and you just triple the size of your balance sheet make a bunch of other loans the loans are high interest as long as those loans pay off you can eventually get back to even but it's injecting a lot of systemic risk into the economy and uh, by the early 90s that system totally fell apart uh, there's a similar, uh, I guess, somewhat analogous example in uh, California in uh, the late 90s, or early 2000s, when they the original plan was to totally deregulate their energy market. And uh, there was a lot of pushback on that. So they came up with this system where... It was, um, it was deregulated in the sense that utilities could buy power from anywhere, that there was a sort of, there was a market in wholesale electricity, but they wrote a ton of rules to limit the extent to which that market could be abused. The problem is if you write a bunch of rules on how some complicated market should function and then you basically tell the utilities you have to provide power for people in in your market and then you tell the energy sellers you can do whatever you want as long as you follow the rules you're incentivizing them to find interesting loopholes so enron found a ton of um, really clever ways to totally ruthlessly exploit the rules like they they would do things like um, one of the rules was if you are trying to route power over some power line and the power line doesn't have enough capacity for that power you get a premium to route it somewhere that does have enough capacity. So Enron would say, okay, we're going to route everything on mines that don't have enough capacity for that much power, and then we automatically get a premium when we reroute it on the, the route that made sense in the first place. They, they had a, a lot of different strategies that were similar to that where they there was some incentive built into the rules and that incentive was supposed to be, if you accidentally do X, we'll pay you to do Y instead, and they realized that there's no way to know if doing X was an accident or not. So um, Enron basically was able to turn the California utilities into their own ATM. They made so much money that one element of Enron's fraudulent accounting was understating how profitable the trading business was. But... Since it's a trading business and since it was run by ruthless sociopaths, they recorded all their conversations in case someone made a deal and then reneged on that deal. And all of those recordings were discoverable. So once Enron was um, was on trial for basically destroying California's electrical utility industry and uh, plunging the state temporarily into the dark ages... There were all these nice recordings of people joking about how they were causing brownouts or making fun of elderly retirees who didn't know why their power was so expensive, all sorts of um, really nasty stuff. So um, basically, public-private, pseudo-public, pseudo-private partnerships in the U.S., for whatever reason, tend to bring out the absolute worst in our system, and they also tend to be colossally expensive,
0: so we shouldn't do that. Social capital. I know you read the most recent Alex Danko post on social capital. I'm curious what you found interesting there and, and the idea, you have this idea that we should have a, a treat like a monetary asset or, or how can we relate social capital and financial capital?
1: Yeah, so the part of the idea of social capital as a concept is that People just derive joy from from being the first person to discover someone brilliant and from introducing them to a bunch of angel investors and early employees who then go on to help that person create a valuable company. So, yeah, part of the part of the Denko argument is just that that um, that angel investing itself doesn't. Hey, it isn't really worth the risk or the effort, but it is really high status. So, or it's it's high status to do it well. So that's why people do it. So you could you could argue that it's sort of like being a musician or an athlete where you might make a lot of money, but that shouldn't be why you do it, because there are probably easier ways to, to make money. Um, in terms of treating it like a, a monetary asset. You can it is it's certainly amenable to um, to financial modeling like i I like to think of uh, nepotism broadly defined as just a uh, a credit market for reputation rather than for cash so If you know someone, you know that they are a total unknown among your friends or among investors, but you can vouch for them. If you vouch for them and they turn out to do really well, that makes you sound smart and sophisticated and well-connected. If you vouch for them and they turn out to steal everyone's money or be incompetent, that makes you look bad and um, you have less reputational capital to deploy. So it ends up being, uh, a temporarily or an incrementally self-correcting system, of course you can end up with social capital inequality with people who are just totally locked out of the system and have no way to get in. And um, that might be analogous to a banking system where the banks are willing to lend money to literally anybody who doesn't need it and are not willing to risk money on new and uncertain projects. And um, it's, in that case, it's uh, it's a tough situation to deal with because the the actual optimal outcome is either a for someone in that social capital ecosystem to defect from the system's norms, lend some of their social capital to someone who would normally be um, automatically nixed from that, or um, for, for somebody else to create their own independent social capital network. Um, you can also think of it in, in financial terms by thinking of the, uh, the money supply and bubbles argument. So while it's not true that every bubble is caused by an increase in the money supply, it is certainly true that an increase in the money supply can cause a bubble. So if you have an increase in the reputation supply, if there are just more people willing to vouch for more people, then you end up with too many bad ideas getting funded. And you also end up with people optimizing for getting recommended versus optimizing for building something good. So that also directly analogizes to financial markets, but um, it's, it, it, well, it it's the same phenomenon in financial markets, but, there is not um, there's not as much to do about it because it's not like you have a central bank of status. It's not like you can either avert status inflation or inject additional status into some set of people when there's been some big collapse in status. Like if there were a central bank of status, then maybe post Theranos and post WeWork, it would have lowered the implicit interest rate on status or printed up a bunch of status tokens and just distributed them as widely as possible. But that just doesn't happen. So in that sense, a status market is um, maybe analogous to the gold standard where there can be inflation and deflation and they're actually somewhat exogenous to the system. So you have to you have to be very careful if you are relying on some steady trend in the availability of status.
0: If you had a couple minutes to explain what you find sort of different about financial bubbles, or are you sort of in the Alex Denko, Carlo de Perez? Bill Janeway School of Understanding Financial Bubbles, which is they're, you know, the necessary uh, for the infrastructure of the next technological platform, or or what what's the best way or most unique way that you think about financial bubbles uh, that you wish more people understood or appreciated regarding them in, in general, or maybe specific ones like 2008 or Japan in the 90s or, or any other?
1: Yeah, there's, there's never one unifying theory that maps to every bubble. Um, that's, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't happen if there were a consistent theory that that worked for every one of them because you'd spot them before they got too big. So every bubble has this dynamic where some people will say expectations are too high, everyone's too wildly optimistic, people are throwing too much money at at something that's not clearly going to work, and then other people saying no, this is early. The first people to um, the first people to to build whatever this new thing is will make so much money that it's actually going to pay for a lot of losses a lot of uh, a lot of poorly considered projects like you can look at the internet bubble people were skeptical of it starting in um, in the mid 90s starting in like 1995 1996 it looked like it was crazy for a long time and then it turned out that a lot of the predictions about what the bubble would change were actually entirely right like we do spend a lot of our time looking at screens, we are all online all the time. The internet has changed shopping, it's changed relationships, it's changed entertainment, it's changed communications, it's changed culture. So the, the dot-com optimists were actually right, but the ones who got optimistic at the wrong time lost a lot of money. The ones who, um, who sort of created their optimism ex post because neighbors were getting rich buying dot-com stocks they wanted to get rich too they ended up having these really shoddy copies because they didn't understand the the core of um, of the thesis and so they they ended up recreating some of the superficial elements of it um this this you would start to see when um, when amazon was a hot stock in in the 96 97 time frame and um other companies would launch online bookstores like barnes and nobles spun off barnesandnoble.com that was a a hot ipo books a million the stock when books a million announced that they had a website um that was literally the announcement was just there's books a million.com right now and there wasn't before the stock went from three dollars a share to 50 over the course of two or three days um I think KTEL Records had a similar kind of spike for a similar reason. So a lot of these companies, the companies were doing a sort of shoddy copy way too late of of what was actually being built. And investors were also doing a shoddy copy way too late of what smart investors had been doing a year or two before. Um, every bubble is going to be different because we all know what happened in the last bubble. We don't want to make that mistake again. So we'll make a totally different mistake. Um, It might be cyclical, but you don't really know, which uh, it's, it's certainly not uh, a B A B A B kind of cycle. It's it's probably a longer cycle with epic cycles. A bubble has to have a narrative. The narrative has to have some sort of external validity. So um, you do have to know what's going on in the outside world before you start framing things as a bubble. Like. Um, You can look at that back and forth um, dynamic where you have one kind of bubble and then a totally different kind of bubble if you compare 2000 with 2008. So in 2000, it was this bubble that was all about all about an inflection point all about this radical change in what was possible all about a whole lot of new wealth being created and being captured by a small number of very clever people and very powerful companies in in 2007 and 8 the the bubble collapse was a collapse in this bubble about convergence rather than divergence it was about every country catching up to the US in terms of GDP per capita. It was about um, volatility across all asset classes, whether it's currencies or commodities or housing, especially, or loans backing housing, about all of those volatilities being compressed. It's about every stream of cash flows being modeled better and better like we really did have these incredible achievements in how to think about um, modeling the values of different collections of cash flows, assuming that the correlations between them were knowable. It just turned out that if everyone's investing based on historical correlations and they all invest in the same basket of uncorrelated assets, then the marginal driver of pricing in those assets is those incremental investors. So if they all have to sell at the same time, correlation, between uncorrelated historically uncorrelated assets goes to one, and everybody gets wiped out. So those are totally different bubbles. Like um, internet stocks did not necessarily correlate that strongly with one another. Um, there were different sub bubbles within the bubble. Like there was there was a media phase. There was a sort of user generated content phase. Um, towards the end, there towards like the late nineties, uh, like nineteen ninety nine or so, a lot of the contracting companies, so the companies where they would pay someone $30 an hour to write Pearl, and then they would rent that person out to a big company for $200 an hour. Um, Those companies did well in 1999. And then in 2000, even after the NASDAQ bubble had peaked, there was this thesis that a lot of the the router companies, network equipment companies, and enterprise-facing companies, they would still do well because everyone had raised so much money for their dot-com startup ideas in 1998 and 1999, they'd still have to spend the money. But it turned out that a lot of the money and in infrastructure was spent ahead of Y2K. So all of the uh, all of the really old hardware and software was just ripped out and replaced with new stuff. So um, everything was shiny and new on January 1st, 2000, and then uh, IT equipment, CapEx, just plummeted after that. So there were lots of little bubbles within that bubble that all had their own internal logic. Um, and then if you, if you were scared straight by that, if you said, I will never again be fooled by this chart that's screaming up and to the right, then the chart you'd get fooled by is a chart that used to be bouncing around wobbling a lot and that got steadier and steadier and steadier over time because eventually that chart just goes straight down.
0: Uh, last, uh, last question. You, you had this post to why reading is, is better uh, it, for ingesting information than uh, podcasts or other things, and not just for certain people, but for everybody. <laughs> and I, uh, I took it personally a little bit. No, that's a, that's a strong. But I was, uh, I was in, I'm insecure, I should say, because I, I had recently decided that instead of – and this is a bit different than what you said – instead of reading nonfiction books about very complex topics, I should invite the authors on my podcast, and just uh, interview them, uh, and you know maybe read a little bit to prepare for it. But that that would be a more effective way to internalize sort of the main points and 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 points of nuance that are that are or, and contention that are not necessarily in the book. But why am I wrong, or, or or why is something about reading just just so much better as a way of retention? Because I I I was having difficulty re- retaining sort of nonfiction books and big ideas as opposed to just talking to people who 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 they themselves have internalized it.
1: Well, <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit of a traitor to my cause because I am on a podcast right now. But what I would say is that um, the people you find, if you're, so one, if you're in a position to talk to the author for nonfiction book, that, that is probably more efficient because a lot of books, if they're on a topic you're interested in, you already know a lot of the information. And what you really want is to read the book as if you're having an argument with the author where you find the things they disagree on, or you find the little details that they knew that you didn't know, or the claims they make that you think are totally refuted by something you know. So it's much more efficient to do that if you can just get the author to talk to you. Um, I do agree with that. But um, the broader point that I was making was that writing has, um, has fairly low production costs for um, for anyone with niche interests. So you, it, it has low, low production costs and low discovery costs. So if someone is going to write the definitive article on some software library or something, it's just um, it's super easy to find it on Google. It's super easy for them to just type, 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 and hit publish and there it is. So that makes writing really good for, for long tail content. Um, writing, also has these nice affordances for complicated ideas. Um, you can scroll forward, you can scroll back. If someone uses a term and you realize that they introduced it earlier and your eyes happen to have glazed over at that point, you can just go back and search. It's really hard to do that within a podcast. Um, and then there's just the fact that I've noticed that so many smart people spend so much time reading and that so many of the interesting conversations I have, it turns out to be a conversation um, between me based on the things I've read and someone else based on the things they've read, either we have some overlapping things, but um, different interpretations or uh, ideally our, our reading approaches have led to this Venn diagram where um, we've each gotten different obsessions that have some parallels between each other, but we've gone down different rabbit holes and can, um, can dig up some treasures from those rabbit holes to, to share with one another and swap. Um, So I, it, I end up seeing that reading a lot just gives you a a nice substrate for for achievement in a variety of domains. It's certainly not a total substitute for conversation, but I would view it as a very valuable complement to conversation. And um, the main comparison I wanted to make was, was not so much reading versus podcasts um, because podcasts, so podcasts versus reading, um, they, they do have the value of, uh, of being consumable in different concepts, of being consumable semi-passively. Like I'm not going to read a book if I'm washing the dishes or if I'm um, on a bike or running or something, but I can listen to a podcast. And in fact, um, when I'm doing cardio, which is not that often in my life, but when I am doing cardio, I do end up listening to uh, podcasts while I'm doing it. So... So to that extent, um, podcasts do fit into some pieces of time that would otherwise be dead time. But what I was really going after was actually getting information from video because video has really high production costs. So it has to appeal to a lot of people. That means it can't be niche, but a lot of people like the idea of having niche interests. So there's this tendency for online video creators to, to try to pitch something as niche, but to actually... Dumb it down somewhat, or to to make it pseudo niche, but actually pretty bland, and um, and that's just the worst. But but it makes sense that you'd you'd package something as totally distinctive and narrow, and you, the viewer, are one of only a dozen people who could possibly comprehend this. And then you look at the viewer count. Oh, it's it's not a dozen. It's twelve million. Uh, clearly, this is actually not that niche, not that weird. Um, It does, it just costs a lot to make a video that is watchable, whereas it's really, really easy to go on Medium and produce a really nicely formatted blog post. Like, that's why I'm on Medium was just, I wanted to not waste um, between one and 30 hours on CSS um, to make the blog look okay. And Medium makes it look better than okay instantaneously, which means more time for
0: the content. Uh, you mentioned I asked you earlier who's the most underrated intellectual right now, and you uh, you came up with Samo uh, Buria, I think it is. Well, why, why Samo?
1: Samo thinks hard about institutions, about where they come from, why they persist, why they die, and that's useful. Um, it's useful to me in an American context because of the, the drawdown problem I mentioned earlier, where Americans for our most of our cultural history just haven't had this experience of getting totally wiped out and having to start from nothing again. And that makes us uh, a very risk-tolerant culture, but it also makes us stupidly optimistic. So um, I think taking this broader historical view where you say every society collapses eventually, every empire falls, every institution ends up getting captured by people who are indifferent to or even antagonistic to its goals, and that if you care about achieving anything, you have to understand this mortality of every institution. Um that's that's really bracing and refreshing. It's an intellectual cold shower. And he's just a really deep thinker who's, who's looked at a variety of historical issues. Um, I think the thing he most recently shaped my mind about actually goes back to the text versus video discussion, because he did point out recently that there is one category of information that youtube has led to a revolution in which is tacit knowledge which is how you physically do something with objects in the real world so if you want to fix a car or any household appliance you can find a youtube video which someone demonstrates exactly how to do it and that is something that i would not want to explain how to do in a blog post i would want to actually watch a video of it in fact uh, my my wife and i have this uh, pack and play for our kids and every um Every time a kid outgrows it, we disassemble it and stash it away, and every time we do, I watch the same YouTube video explaining exactly where to touch and what to hit and how to, how to shift it around so that it folds up into this
0: tiny, um, storable object. Uh, you, you've written about the, the tyranny of long generation. Oh, what does that mean? The tyranny of the long
2: generation refers to this phenomenon where, when an industry is growing quickly, It continuously hires more people, it continuously hires a new cohort of people every year. So the average age tends to be pretty young in that industry. So you can look at something like banking in the 80s and 90s, consulting and law around the same time, tech in the 90s, tech in the 2010s. These are industries that are growing really quickly. Um, A lot of people join the industry out of college. And what happens in an industry that's growing like that is that there are a lot of opportunities for upward mobility. So if the company you're at is doubling in size every year, then if you've been there two years, um, three-quarters of the employees have been there less time than you, you've accumulated social capital, you can probably end up managing people and uh, working on interesting stuff. But where things get difficult is when an industry's growth slows down because when that happens, they stop hiring a lot of new people, a lot of young people, and um, the average age of that industry starts going up. That has a couple side effects, one of which is that it means more people remember more bad stuff. so people um, they have long memories for disasters and people um, who were in an industry where something bad happened but before they joined they don't really they don't really care about it. So um, one really interesting example of this is the uh, financial services industry, especially um, money management and uh, the stock brokerage industry so after the crash of 1929, there was this roughly 20-year period where essentially nobody who went to Harvard Business School went to work on Wall Street. And what that meant was that by 1950, the, um, the average age for the industry had to be in the 50s. A young person in the industry would have been 40 or so. So when people like Warren Buffett and some of the early GoGo hedge fund managers, or go go mutual fund managers of the 1960s, when they started to join the industry, there was not a lot of competition, especially for higher risk stuff. So a lot of these go go fund managers, they would look at tech stocks, and at the time, tech would be things like Polaroid, Xerox, IBM. Um, For someone who'd been investing in 1925, 1926, etc., they remember 1929, they remember what happened to RCA, General Electric, uh, to all of the hot tech stocks of that age, so they were pretty averse to that. In Warren Buffett's case, he wasn't looking at tech at all, although he did some, uh, some tech investing with his personal money, he was looking at a lot of companies that had very complicated financial structures. And this is something that people also had really bad memories of from 1929 and the Great Depression. So if you're Warren Buffett, you're looking at some small publicly traded company that has a really complex holding company structure. And when you do all the math and net out all the liabilities, you realize this company is trading at a fraction of its cash on hand. And if the company liquidates, all the investors will make a fortune. That gets really that gets Warren Buffett really excited. but. To a normal investor who remembers 1929, it just reminds them of the trusts or the insult companies or all of these really levered financial pyramids that fell apart as soon as the economy slowed down. So that gave people like Buffett and uh, other people who had joined the industry this de facto monopoly on the most interesting corners of in the industry. So it lends itself to two pieces of advice, one of which is if you're in an industry that's growing very quickly and you start to see it slow down you should get very concerned you should consider switching careers because what will happen is in a slow growth industry a lot of ambitious people have joined the industry they have expected things to expand they've expected the ambit of their responsibilities to grow and if it doesn't they start to get more political more machiavellian if it's not positive some it'll be zero sum and if it's zero sum but you have some really aggressive aggressive and unethical people it's immediately negative sum. Uh, For a lot of people, they themselves are not inclined to do this kind of zero-sum office politics gamesmanship, but if they know other people are going to do it, then they have to do it as a purely defensive measure. So that's one reason to be really cautious about any industry where growth is slowing. The converse of that is if you are choosing a college major right now or you're choosing among career options, try to pick the one where um, that major peaked in popularity in the late 70s or early 80s, because that's an industry where a lot of people will retire. So it's an industry where a lot of the institutional memory will shrink, the risk tolerance will go up. There'll be a lot of opportunities to do something much more interesting.
0: You know, Ezra Klein had this critique of of Silicon Valley in his most recent episode with Tyler Cowen. He said, um, you know, the the way Silicon Valley approaches uh, sort of uh, big ideas and politics is they make a a lot of things that sound crazy. And it's like venture capital. One of them is going to be right and really right, but most of them is going to be wrong. And I found it a pretty clever way to basically dismiss (laughs) Silicon Valley's uh, sort of approach to thinking about politics or thinking about the world outside of technology. Do you think that Ezra's critique is uh, unfair, uh, exaggerated, right on? How do you think about that?
2: Um, I think it's really
1: impressive that he is willing to embrace such an ideologically conservative, viewpoint, very very open-minded. Um, <laughs> experimentation is a lot more appropriate in the private sector than in the public sector because in the private sector, it's, uh, it's really easy to fail. Like there are high-profile failures where everyone wonders how this company raised so much money when it was obviously fraudulent, but they're high-profile failures. Um, high-profile failures for the government are often programs that still exist and are still spending money and that someone is still in charge of and they're still gradually getting raises for running so um, a totally different kind of failure like i i want all of the crazy ideas like that 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 have a high risk of failure. I want a lot of them to be implemented by the private sector, unless they require the kind of coordination that governments can provide the private sector can, in which case we should be really cautious. We should, um, we should ask how to get extremely competent people into government to implement those things. Um, Dominic Cummings is trying to do that in the UK right now. I don't think that a Cummings-like figure exists in the US, although um, I hope I hope someone like that does. I mean, statistically, we're a bigger country. We should have someone like that. Perhaps we do, and they're just lower profile. But um, yeah, that is that is generally what I would say um, to, to Ezra, is that, that um, the private sector is pretty good at identifying failure. In fact, one of the cases where we're not good at identifying failure is, with private companies that have a, uh, a single major backer that keeps investing more money. But where that gets tricky is that when, when I offer that framing, you probably think of SoftBank investing in WeWork. So SoftBank invests in WeWork, and then WeWork raises another round. SoftBank puts in more money at a higher valuation. So it looks like SoftBank's stake is continuing to appreciate, but really SoftBank is the only entity willing to pay remotely close to that price for WeWork stock, but... Um, in his uh, Reddit Ask Me Anything a long time ago, Peter Thiel had the argument that um, that when a company raises money and it's the, the leader of the round is a repeat backer and everyone says it's overvalued, it's probably undervalued. And the more overvalued people say it is, the more undervalued it actually is. And uh, Facebook would be a classic example of that where every round... That Facebook raised. People talked about how this is the peak of um, at first the Web 2.0 bubble and then the social media bubble. And um, every round, that Facebook raised turned out to be a very good deal for its investors. So um, that is that is a case where the where the, the private sector is not very good at spotting problems, but it's also a case where the the private sector actors who are creating those problems have disproportionately more money at stake and so they lose disproportionately more when it doesn't work out. Like the the punishment for WeWork's failure, are, or the I guess the drop in WeWork's valuation, is that it's extremely hard for SoftBank to raise Vision Fund 2 and that a lot more investors are really nervous about uh, about the signaling value of taking money from SoftBank. So, they are actually getting penalized even disproportionately to the amount of capital they lost, and that's just less common in government. In government, if you have a failed program that's supposed to address some problem and it doesn't address that problem well. Now the problem is bigger, so we need to program more than ever.
0: D- describe the, uh, the argument you make, uh, or the business books, rare coins argument. Sure. So
2: these are both arguments about what information we have and
1: what selection mechanism causes us to get that information and not other, not information from other sources. So with business books... Um, I first started reading business books in probably 2001 or 2002, and I was really, really spoiled because a ton of books came out about the dot-com bubble, and then about Enron, and um, they were all really dishy, had lots of details, were very eloquent and well-written. So I was just under the impression that if you care about reading long-form stories about business, you will always have something fun to read. But that wasn't the case. Um, By 2004, 2005, it was pretty much a wasteland. And then in 2009 and 2010, you started getting really good books again. So what I realized was that a couple things have to happen, Um, that one thing that has to happen is that you need smart, well-informed people who are not really, really busy making a ton of money who can talk to an author instead. So this has to be either after the exit or after they've lost a ton of money and are really resentful. You want them to have an incentive to tell their side of the story because then you have a clean, coherent narrative of course, it's a biased narrative, and um, a lot of the authors of these books don't really recognize that because a lot of successful business people have to be really good at telling a story because that's how they raise capital, and a lot of them are also salespeople. They're also recruiters for whatever company they're running, so they have to be really, really good at articulating a vision. Um, this is a trap Michael Lewis falls into all the time where um, he, like flashboys. it's At one level, it's the story of a bunch of these sinister nerds manipulating the financial system to steal money from mom-and-pop investors. At another level, it's a story about a guy whose um, job was to be a trader and a salesman. He was not a great trader, but was an excellent salesman. and um, Or at least he was was not a trader who was adaptable to changes in the structure of the market, but was still a really good salesman, and um, he sold Michael Lewis very well on that narrative of high frequency trading so that's that's where business books come from um, another reason that they that the books after a crisis are so good is that they actually fit the structure of a greek tragedy where you have someone who is heroic sort of superhuman but um, has some moral flaws they've actually fly too close to the sun they get punished for the hubris so it's this nice deep narrative and um, you find the hero relatable at first and uh, hateable by the end. So you sort of like it. There's a reason that, uh, that those are Greek tragedy that we've had them for, for 2,000 plus years. That it, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that clicks with the human brain. With rare coins, um, I, a friend invited me to a coin show and I'd never been to one before. And uh, it was surreal because when you go to a rare coin show, you can just touch the coins. And you can't go to a museum and have someone just hand you a 2,000-year-old statue, but um, I was holding a coin that uh, an ancient Roman would have used to buy their bread or wine that an ancient Athenian would have used for them, probably similar purposes, and that was, um, it was almost dizzying. But what I learned is that the coins that we have are generally coins that people stashed somewhere and um, that they didn't recover. So... If you have a bunch of coins, it's probably because you have some money. It's probably because um, the rate of return on wealth is greater than economic growth. So you're, you, as a, a member of the craftsman or merchant class or the banking class, you're able to, to accumulate wealth over time. You bury it because you want to keep it safe, and then um, somebody kills you and burns down your city. And so you don't recover the money, and some archaeologist uh, finds it millennia later, so in that sense, the coins that we have are are this um, this snapshot of when times were good and suddenly got bad it's um, a little bit analogous to some of the earliest writings that we have on clay tablets, where um, a lot of Mesopotamians would take notes on clay tablets, write down contracts on clay tablets, or keep tallies of inventory, and um, most of those tablets could be reused because it's clay but if you were doing that and your city got raised to the ground, the raising process bakes the clay, so it saves it from RAM to ROM, and we just have this permanent snapshot of what business was like
0: right before business got extremely bad. Another thing we were thinking about is what, why, um, you know, Peter Till wrote this book about how monopolies, and, and yet why in so many industries are there duopolies or multiple power players when it looks like there should be one dominating? <sighs>
1: Yeah, so this is—it's a striking phenomenon because there are a lot of spaces where you can name a monopoly, and it's pretty obvious that there should be one. Like um, Facebook monopolizing social networking because you wouldn't join a social network your friends aren't on—they're all on Facebook, so you're on Facebook. Um, Google monopolizing search because to continuously optimize search results, you need a lot of data points on what people search and what they subsequently click. So if you have high market share and even decent engineers. You will maintain your high market share, being able to afford lots of those engineers. So monopolies—it seems pretty obvious that that they should, um, we should expect them to exist in any technologically dynamic sector. We should expect them to periodically get killed or get regulated um, into submission. But you know, we, we're not surprised to see them. But duopolies are weird. There's—it's weird that there would be two companies that are really good at producing sugar waters, so you've got Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Um, nobody really thinks that Coca-Cola is going to beat Pepsi or vice versa, but they're both very nice, profitable businesses. In, in aircraft, you've got Airbus and Boeing, in, um, in Travel Search you have Booking.com and Expedia. So it is weird that there would be duopolies in some sectors and not in others. And What I suspect is that it's gonna be a different story in each case. So with Coca-Cola and with Pepsi, you do need ubiquitous distribution and you need ubiquitous marketing. So the reason that these work as companies and as cultural phenomena is that if you can buy Coca-Cola anywhere, then Coca-Cola can advertise anywhere and remind you that you like it. And if they advertise anywhere, then you will go buy it. So it's a nice virtuous cycle. it's probably the case that Coca-Cola and Pepsi um, expanded in, at, in different parts of the country. They expanded at different paces at different times, and it may just be that that there's enough mindshare out there for one, uh, for for two companies, but that three would not be profitable enough to to persist. Like there are there are lesser colas out there, but. Um, if you're if you're a fan of one, it's usually out of some some ir- ironic sense or some just perverse love for the underdog. Um, the the products are pretty similar, so um, I think everyone with an opinion on how similar they are has read the same Buffett biography I did, where the um, it's the the Lowenstein one, um, yeah, the Lowenstein Buffett biography, in which he talks about how Coca-Cola launched New Coke because. Pepsi did an ad campaign where people did blind taste tests and they're like Pepsi. And Coca Cola knew exactly why. Pepsi is 4% sweeter and people love sweet things. Um, as a side note, there's a, a fascinating article in the New Yorker a couple of years ago called The Fruit Detective about a guy, um, with a really interesting backstory. But um, his job was to find exotic new fruits and sell them to high-end grocery stores. And uh, his friend, the author of the article, tracks him down and asks him, what is the secret to identifying the next great fruit?" And he says, find something that's really sweet. Uh, It turns out that all the the subtleties, all the notes and flavors and things, that doesn't matter. What matters is more sugar per bite. So Coca-Cola, they designed New Coke. It's a little bit sweeter than Pepsi instead of being a little bit less sweet than Pepsi. But people don't like it because they don't like the brand name. And what what may be going on is that it's a a Hotelling's Law situation. So Hotelling is an economist. Um, He has Hotelling's Rule, Hotelling's Law. They're both very useful constructs, but totally unrelated to one another. Um, The rule is that, maybe it's law, one of them is that competition When there are two competitors and they're competing along one axis, you would expect them to be as close to each other as possible while still maintaining some visible differentiation because that way, if you imagine, um, the, the example he gives is imagine that there are two ice cream stands on a beach. You want to be located as close to the center as possible because that maximizes the number of people who are, as close, who are closer to your ice cream stand than the other person's ice cream stand. Anytime that, um, that you move away from the center, they should move right next to you because then everyone on their side is still closer to them and you don't have as many people on your side. So hoteling's law can't explain it when there is just one axis. So if it's just um, ubiquitous national distribution and nonstop national advertising are cable stakes and then the axis of competition is sweetness Then Coca-Cola captures everyone who is either from Atlanta or has slightly less of a sweet tooth, but still likes cold carbonated beverages with a little bit of a caffeine kick. And then Pepsi captures everyone who is not from Atlanta has a bit more of a sweet tooth and has the same beverage preference. Um, that, that works for Coca-Cola and Pepsi that also works for Republicans and Democrats where the, the cosmetic differences are, um, Definitely visible to everyone, but the policy differences are a lot less meaningful. Especially if you talk to the actual people off the record and find out that they all think roughly alike. They just uh, exaggerate the differences for sort of pro wrestling storyline reasons. But it doesn't do a good job of explaining the online travel agencies. So there's there's really not a Booking.com flavor, or Expedia flavor. Like there's there's not an axis on which they're all that different, but In that case, what is likely going on is that building up the network, um, so building up the list of destinations is this extremely time-consuming and tedious process with network effects, localized network effects. So Booking had this amazing position in Europe. They had this long, long tail of, tiny independent European hotels, and um, Expedia and its subsidiaries really didn't, but Expedia did have a better position in the U.S. So in that narrative, they they both basically grew to the point where their network effect was robust enough that they could expand into one of those markets. Neither one of them had a great opportunity to do so, so they both sort of got stuck in uh, at, at close to parity, at, at, at duopoly status, and then, in their case, there's also the supply chain of attention argument, where a lot of uh, a lot of travel decisions will at some point pass through Google. There would be basically two bidders, and then other companies are at some point sending their traffic to Expedia or to Booking. Um, so in that case. The two of them are are sort of fighting it out for this one channel, but they've both fully saturated the channel, and there are not a lot of other channels for them to pursue. So then the question is, why are they both pretty good businesses? And the answer to that may just be that travel was a sector that should have gone digital, that did go digital, and that continues to go more digital, like as bizarre as it is to think. There are some people who are not going to start their travel decisions on Google, and every year more of those people make the switch so the businesses continue to grow and they just have um so that can be the story up to 2009 2010 or so and then the story thereafter can just be economic growth has continued that the richer people get the more they spend on travel so there's been an economic tailwind to both companies that has made the businesses look better than they perhaps fundamentally
0: are. What are topics you expect to write about in the in the near future? Yeah, so
1: I, I do have, um, I basically want to, to figure out what the early stages of the Cold War looked like. What's going on between the US and China is not the same thing, but there are doubtless some fruitful analogies. Other stuff that I want to write about, um, I have a couple things in progress. There are uh, there's some natural experiments that I think speak to the question of the extent to which the market is or is getting more dominated by automated traders. So you can look at statistics of what percentage of trades are algorithmic trades, but that's not really telling you what percentage of the intentions behind trades are totally algorithmic and have no human input. There are some natural experiments, some cases where Humans would be less likely to participate in the market, and robots would not be less likely to participate in the market. So, you can use those, um, check those over time to see whether or not the robot, the pure robot thesis, is actually valid. Um, one thing I'm looking into is residential real estate as a, a way to capitalize um, economic rents from monopolistic companies or industry, dom- globally dominant companies. In um, mostly headquartered in San Francisco, but also in New York, um, and also to capitalize the the economic rents of uh, landlords restricting housing supply, the basic thrust of this argument is that if you look at the uh, housing price to income ratio, it hit a huge peak in two thousand and six It declined substantially since then, and it 's been creeping up but the the areas with a lot of housing price inflation are generally areas with really good um, upper middle-class knowledge economy kinds of jobs. So what I suspect is actually going on is that if you move from Dallas to San Francisco or New York, the amount, the percentage of your income you spend on real estate does go up, but your quality of life can also go up because you're making so much more money. And so you, even after your higher rent, you have more money left over. So in that case, um, the The rising ratio of housing prices to incomes is is not a huge problem. Um, one last thing i 'm working on is um, the Norwegian economic miracle, which is the fact that Norway is a country with a small population. They discovered some very valuable natural resources, lots and lots of oil and um, the result is that they are slightly richer than the most uh, most direct comparable countries. So Sweden, Denmark, um, usually natural resources, if you discover natural resources that are worth a huge fraction of your GDP or that multiply, um, your potential GDP, usually just totally wrecks your country's institutions. So the, um, the question is basically why is Norway a fairly normal country? What allows them to survive this, this massive wealth creation? Um, I think that'll be an interesting one. Like if you compare Norway to, um, to Russia or Saudi Arabia or Qatar. Uh, It's just a much more balanced economy and uh, it has a political system that is less focused on, Maintaining control of the natural resource versus doing things that
0: normal governments just do. Yeah, is there lessons that we should le- the U.S. should learn, or other other countries should follow from there? Or is it so- well, the U.S. doesn't need to learn a
1: ton of lessons there because we are such a big country and we have such bountiful natural resources that we've basically been stress tested as much as can we can conceivably be stress tested by. This super abundance of wealth, so it's it's made the U.S. just the, the best place to to be. Um, we we mostly lucked into it, although um, certainly certainly a lot of people have have also worked very hard to to earn it. But um, I don't think there are a ton of lessons for the U.S. I think there are, there are probably lessons for for any country that has a large oil discovery of just um, how do you make sure that what you end up with is. A large sovereign wealth fund and a slightly more robust uh, social, um, a slightly more robust social safety net, versus having a country that is basically um, an armed camp protecting the oil wealth of a small number of um, of powerful people. And I guess one last thing that I want to write about, which um, is an interesting political phenomenon, is the change in the role of residential real estate price appreciation in politics. So if you go back to the mid 2000s, one of the theses that George W. Bush had was that he noted the correlation between owning a home and voting Republican. And he decided it was causal and that if you make it easier to own a home, you get more Republicans that turned out not to work especially well. Um, It was either a, uh, Like, at best, it was a really expensive vote buying scheme. At worst, it was just totally wrong. But there are two data points that I think are notable, um, one in the U.S., one in the U.K. In the U.S., you have um, the Trump tax cuts that were actually pretty bad for homeowners in um, inexpensive states, or at least not especially good for homeowners in expensive states. And then... um, in the UK, there's this interesting incident where um, during the during the Brexit debate, a politician gave a speech where he warned that in the event that England, that the UK left the EU, that housing prices could drop 15 to 18%. And um, it turned out that this did not, the, the thought was we're warning people that, that their their biggest asset will decline in value. It turned out a lot of Tories were just not persuaded by that. But a lot of younger voters who were not super politically engaged, they were actually really excited by the idea that there was maybe a chance that a house could get cheap enough for them to buy it. So what I suspect is going on is that housing used to be this super middle class asset that um, if you could make housing prices go up, you'd make the middle class better off. The middle class tends to be conservative. So if you're a center-right party, that's what you want to do. But now housing feels so out of reach for people that you um, you can create this new political coalition by telling people that they have a chance to own a home even though it means that you are soaking the homeowners by um, increasing the supply of housing or weakening the tax incentives for owning a house and levering up that house Um, all these things will will make existing homeowners worse off but if they are the reason that someone owns a home then that might get that person to support a particular political party. So I, I don't think that this means that the Republican Party or that the Tories will become the party of young people, young urban workers who are finally buying their first home. But I do think that it should be a concern for um, for anyone who who assumes that there's a strong political mandate in favor of continuous housing price appreciation because that may not be the case in the future.
0: I think uh, that's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Burn Hobart. Burn, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc